Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. What in the hell do you think you are doing? Hey, John Boy. I'm telling you straight, it's my way or the highway. So anybody wants to walk, do it now. Hey, everybody, we're all going to get late. Yeah! And again, it's picked up. It's Darius Leonard, a pick six for the Maniac. Touchdown, I-N-D-Y. Yes, sir. Yeah! Oh, oh the chicken. Double time. John, I have never been better to be on the air with you here in Indianapolis, a place where so many of my dreams have come true. The Ride with JMV on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Oh, what's going on, everybody? I'm Brian No in for JMV today as he is, you know, just winding down from his Indy 500 experience Memorial Day weekend. I saw JMV at the race momentarily. Got to go to the Indy 500. It was magnificent. And uh, I was meandering around looking for the media center. I was like, I have no idea where this thing is. And then I saw the fan set up right there. And I saw JMV doing his thing. He was live on the air. He's in a commercial break. And there was somebody in front of me and he was literally signing an autograph. He's on his perch. The only thing I was missing was like a fan and grapes. You know what I mean? And like a, a cape. I feel like he needed a cape at that at that point. But JMV's the best, man. He was signing this autograph. And so I just kind of motioned to JMV like I had a pen. I'm like, I need your autograph, JMV. And he laughed and, you know. But he was over there at the race. And he's just winding down from a very good weekend, I would presume, right there. So I'm in for JMV today. Feel free to check in. You want to be interactive, you're more than welcome. 239-1070. Also on Twitter is where you can reach me. At The No Show is where you can find me. So let's start with Indy, huh? Joseph Newgarden pulling it out in the end. And it was just a really, really entertaining 500. I'll get to the uh, controversy, quote-unquote, at least according to Eric, uh, or Marcus, the uh, crybaby cry Erickson over there with the, we shouldn't have restarted. A little controversial depending on where you sit exactly. Some biased comments in my estimation, but we start with the good. We start with the positive, which is Joseph Newgarden finally getting it done at Indy where he had been there 11 times, didn't win, finally got it done. And it's just sweeter that way. I really feel like if you have just been battling, 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 can't get there, can't get there, and you finally do, it is that much sweeter. And this is how the final call sounded. Do they do final call in motorsports? <laughs> Where I said, there's the final call on the Colts radio network. I guess, right? Final call on NBC as Newgarden won the 500. Oops. 
Rookie mistake. I didn't plug it. My bad. My bad on that. Good Lord. I got everything going here. There we go. Except plugging in. Now we're ready to go. My bad. Rookie mistake. I apologize. A thousand apologies right there. Here we go. Here's New Garden. Joseph New Garden has never won the Indianapolis 500. And he's ahead on this last lap. Joseph New Garden. Is this the moment when the pain ends? The drought is it over for Joseph Newgarden. What does Marcus Erickson have something? Team Penske at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And Joseph Newgarden finally wins the Indianapolis 500. You know, I get chills hearing that. That's a great call. And I like the onboard stuff in the background. It adds some pizzazz. Sometimes it, it steps on the call a little bit, a little bit. But I like it. It just seems raw. I, I like that. And then Newgarden, he goes full mosh pit, gets in with the people. He is one of the people. And then just starts frolicking around with the fans. That was really cool, too. This is how it sounded on NBC. Joseph Newgarden into the crowd. Look at this. <laughs> he, he might never make it back. This is awesome. I like that. It was a great description. This is awesome. It was. It was so cool for him to do that. And it, I don't know. We, before the 500, I filled in with Jimmy Cook on the midday show. And on Thursday, just based on how the conversation unfolded, it popped into my head Emerson Fittipaldi. And I believe it was the 93 race. And Fittipaldi won. And they were handing him the traditional milk. And he's like, I'm good. I'm going to drink some orange juice over here. He had like like an orchard or his own business or whatever it was. And he's like, yeah, Heisman posed to the milk. Don't really care about your little tradition over here. Give me some OJ. And it's just a great way for people to hate your guts, you know? And so for New Garden, he drinks the milk. He pours it all over himself. He jumps into the crowd. Like, that's cool. That's the way it should be. And I'd be saying the same thing if Fittipaldi embraced the milk and did the mosh pit and Newgarden Heisman posed the milk. It's just you can't you can't thumb your nose at tradition. And so it was really cool to see Newgarden fully embrace it. Now we get to the good stuff. We get to the controversy over here with Mr. Sour Grapes, Cranky Pants, Marcus Erickson, the defending Indy 500 winner, was trying to make it back-to-back, ended up in second place, was not a fan of the third red flag. So the race got stopped three times. It seemed like it would finish the final time under yellow, under caution. I was there uh, watching the race on the little mini perch in the media center. Great area. It was really fun. And the guy next to me, he had a full headset on, and he's like, yeah, race control is saying they're probably going to end this race. And I'm like, ah, man, it can't end on caution, right? And they red flagged it again, and they had a one-lap shootout. Erickson, not a fan. He finishes in second place. He was leading the race when they restarted for one final lap. 
And so he was cranky pants after the race. This is how he sounded on NBC. I just thought it was an unfair and dangerous end to the race. I don't think it was enough laps to do what we did. I think we've never done a restart out of the pits. And, uh, you know, we don't get the tires up the temperature. You know, congratulations to Joseph. He, he did everything right as well. So, you know, he's, he's a worthy champion. But I'm just very disappointed with the way that, end, that ended. I don't think that was fair. Okay, I've been working on my Marcus Erickson impression. I've spent a lot of time over the weekend. I've tried to perfect it, and I think I've got it down. This is the way it would sound. <clears throat> let me let me get into character right here with Marcus Erickson. <laughs> That's Marcus Erickson right now. Are you kidding me? He went on a little bit more. I love the lead into this because it really does capture the pain of coming so close to winning Indy again. You've experienced the ecstasy of winning this race. Is it just as painful to come that close and not win it? Yeah, it is because I feel like we did everything right. I feel like we won that race and then it sort of got taken away from us. So it's uh, tough to swallow for sure. Oh, my gosh. Cry me a freaking river over here. When he said that that part right there, this one right here. I feel like we won that race, and then it sort of got taken away from us. Sort of got taken away from us. Really? Now, here's the thing. This is what I want you to think about. You might be a diehard Marcus Erickson fan, and God bless you if you are. I don't have anything against the guy, except I think he sounds like a whiny crybaby right here. It's just, I dismiss biased comments. I just dismiss him. I used to fall for him, and I used to just be like, no, no, it's not the way. No, but I'm, And now I just dismiss him. I swat him away like they're mosquitoes right now. And this dude, Erickson, is so biased with his comments about, I feel like the race got taken away from me, and it's not enough laps to restart, and blah, 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 blah. This is what I want you to consider. Um, if Erickson wasn't leading the race when that final red flag came out. Let's say he was in second place. Would he have been cool ending the race under yellow? No, he wouldn't have. Okay, let's say he's not in first place, all right? These comments are so biased. He's in second, he's in third, and he gets word from his pit box like, hey, they're going to red flag it. We get one more lap. Is he going to sit there and be like, oh, that's the wrong decision. They shouldn't be doing that. We don't have enough time to warm up these tires over here. Or or is he saying, cool, I got a chance to win this thing. It's the latter. Okay? Something else to consider. After the final red flag, okay, Marcus Erickson is in first place. If he had held on and won the race, do you think he'd be dwelling on that final restart, he'd be dwelling on that final red flag? Again, no, he wouldn't. So all of this talk is a bunch of biased whining from Marcus Erickson. That's all it is. It's, I didn't benefit. I don't like it. That's it. You know if the roles were reversed and he was in second place and had a chance to win it, he would not be saying any of this. How dumb would the question sound if you went up to Joseph Newgarden, the winner, and said, hey, Joe, Joe A, what did you think about the decision for the final restart? Did you think that was the wrong decision? <laughs> like, do you think he'd look at you and be like, honestly, 
I actually do. We didn't have enough time to warm up the tires. And I mean, I'll take it, but what were they thinking on that thing? Of course not. Of course he's not going to say that. So, look, I'll meet Marcus Erickson halfway. It's the most I could say in his favor. I get that it's tough to lose that way. I can fully understand that. I was talking to my dad after the 500, and he was saying, oh, yeah, he was going to win like $400,000 or half a million just for being a back-to-back winner. This would have been the first time in 21 years someone has like repeated as an Indy 500 winner, winning in consecutive years. He would have won about half a mil on top of all the other prize money and all the other accolades. And So, look, I understand you're that close. You're thinking, okay, we might finish under caution. I might be good. And all of a sudden it's like, nope. It's going to be a green flag and a white flag. You got one lap and you got to hold on to this thing to win it. And you get passed on the back stretch and you come in second place. I understand how that would be incredibly frustrating. I get that. But here's the deal. You got to take the high road. You got to take the high road or you sound like a whiny crybaby. That's exactly how he sounds. I I learned this doing radio here, there. I worked with this guy named Eric Ringering. He was a producer. I worked with him in the Portland area. I did a local show there for a couple of years. And I didn't know about this, but Eric told me about the compliment sandwich. Have you guys ever heard about this? It's a great, great tool. So I just ate a BLT. It was delicious. It's not nearly as delicious as the compliment sandwich, okay? Because it will get you out of jams left and right in life. So what you do, you start with a compliment, then you work in your gripe, your criticism in the middle, then you bookend it with another compliment. And that stuff in the middle, it's almost like a Jedi mind trick where you, you don't even, you just go along with it. You halfway don't even recognize it. So if Marcus Erickson started off and said, look, first and foremost, congratulations to Joseph Erickson. Won it fair and square. I mean, hats off to him. He is a worthy champion. And then he just worked in his beef. Like, you know, I I wasn't happy about it. I'd be lying to you if I said I was. Where we had the restart at the end. It's only one lap. I didn't love it, but then you get it to the bookend compliment. I'm not going to sit here and dwell on it. I love the Indy 500. It's the greatest race we have in motorsports. And look, I'm just happy that New Garden won it. Uh, I, I'd rather I won it, but blah, 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 blah. And you go on from there, right? You bookend it with compliments. If you worked in the beef in the middle, it doesn't stand, up, stand out as much. He did the anti-compliment sandwich. Whatever the opposite would be, he did the negative sandwich. He did, ah, oh, this sucks. I don't know why they did it. My tires weren't even warm. And then he worked in the props in the middle. Yeah, props to Newgarden. Glad he won. (laughs) And then he finished with more griping and complaining. I feel like it was stolen from me. Blah, blah, blah. It's like you don't even recognize the compliment in the middle. It just completely washes over you. Terrible job by Marcus Erickson. He came off looking so small and weak. That's how I felt. I don't know how you guys felt. You guys can chime in on that if you feel like it. But I just think you got to take the high road. I'll compare it this way. Um, 
Eric Lewis. He's an NBA official. There's this story that he's got a burner account. <laughs> okay. And he's he's like standing up for himself and other officials on social media. And somehow, some way, it got traced back to him. Now, his brother is trying to take the rap and say, oh, no, 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 that's my account. I'm behind that one. Believe what you will. I'm not buying that thing. And here's the deal. I'll meet Eric Lewis halfway, just like I'll meet Marcus Erickson halfway. All right, for an NBA official, I understand how frustrating it would be to be doing a job and you are constantly criticized loudly by fans you miss that call you're on the take (laughs) you know like accused of not even being legit like you're involved in salacious scandalous affairs over here like trying to profit off these bad calls you'll hear that from time time to time then on the court all you do is get an earful all game long from players saying you missed that call you missed that other call you missed this other call I can understand how you would feel the need to vent. I get that. But you can't go on social media with your burner account and start firing off tweets. You can't just respond back like that. What if it gets traced back to you? You got to take the high road. I understand how you need to vent. I get it. You're better off taking the high road. It's the same thing with Marcus Erickson. I understand how frustrating it would be. I get why he would feel the need to vent. He's way better off taking the high road. I'm Brian, though, in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5, the fan. Much more on Indy and the psychotic tire. Holy cow. Good thing nobody got hit by that. Are you kidding me? Like That was insane. We got 15 laps to go, and Kyle Kirkwood, he makes contact with another driver, and Kirkwood's tire just goes flying And Kirkwood ends up on his helmet, right? He does a flip. He's skidding. There's sparks everywhere. The tire, it goes over a 45-foot-tall catch fence. 45 feet in the air. It cleared it like it was nothing. It cleared it like an Olympic like high jump athlete. And you just set the bar at like two feet, you know, and they're like, are you serious right now? I can do this in my sleep. That's what the tires said to that catch fence. That was insane. And thank goodness nobody got hit by that thing. You're talking about serious injury, probable death. That's wow. That's so scary, man. Thankfully, everybody was okay. And it just hit what I think was a Chevy Malibu. (laughs) I think it hit a Chevy Malibu. And that's way better than somebody's, you know, forehead. That was insane. I just thought about baseball. They'll always talk about, man, that ball had eyes. You know, if it just kind of drops in between the shortstop and the left fielder. Like, that tire had eyes. Because, man, that if that were to happen, it happened in the perfect spot for nobody to get hurt. That was crazy. I'll get a little bit into my personal Indy 500 experience later in the show. Um, My feet were cramping up because I was just downing Mountain Dew left and right. (laughs) I was drinking some water too. But man, they had a fountain of Mountain Dew in the media area. (laughs) 
What do you expect? Just drink water there? You kidding me? Oh, I was just slamming dudes left and right. And all of a sudden, at the end of the race, about 30 laps to go, my feet are just cramping up like crazy. I made it. I know you're concerned. I, I did make it. Everything's fine. Um, but I'll get you a little bit more of some of the funnier things as far as the uh, race goes in my experience. Uh, there are a couple of things that happened last night that got me thinking about the Pacers and the Colts. If you watched Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, man, Miami just crushed Boston. Props to the Heat for coming back against Boston. Uh, Let me just lay it out, and I'll get to the Pacers and Colts in a second, because there's something Eric Spolstra said that made me think of both teams. So Miami, you talk about being mentally tough. This team is tough. They lost a heartbreaker in game six. They were one stop away. They had a one-point lead with three seconds to go. Jimmy Butler's on the bench saying one stop, one stop, and it's over. Marcus Smart misses a three. It bounces off perfectly for Boston. Derek White with the the tip in at the buzzer. Point one on the clock, and he gets it out of his hand. And Boston wins. You come back from that. An absolute heartbreaker. You go on the road to Boston in Game 7. That place is going freaking nuts. And Miami not only goes in there and wins, they pummel Boston. That is a mentally tough team. Boston, not so much. They're talented, but they're weak. They're soft. They don't have the mental toughness that the Miami Heat do. They don't. Now, a couple of things Pacers related. They did show it last night. Reggie Miller was on the call. And they said the Miami Heat, of course, the first eight seed to reach the NBA Finals since the Pacers uh, got knocked off by the Knicks, right? The Knicks did it back in 1999, beat the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. And so they brought up that painful memory. And Reggie Miller's like, oh, gosh, what are you you doing to me over here? And, that man, that was frustrating. You go back to the Pacers that season, they swept the Bucks in five. Well, the best of five. They, you know, they won three games. They swept the Sixers in the second round. So they're 7-0 and heading into the Eastern Conference Finals, hadn't lost a game. And then the eight seed, the Knicks, knock them off. And, of course, 99, that's the first year that Jordan's not around. That's the first year that the Bulls are not reigning supreme. And the Pacers got knocked off by an eight seed. That was not good. Now, the other thing that got me thinking of the Pacers and also the Colts, believe it or not, based on last night's game, it's something that Eric Spolstra said. He made a comment that was just absolutely top shelf. Talking about the Miami Heat and what happened last year. They got oh so close. Eastern Conference Finals, game seven against Boston in Miami. And they come up painfully short, just oh so short, heartbreakingly short, better adjective. So here's Spolstra last night referencing last year's pain and moving forward this year. I think a lot of people can relate to this team because, uh, you know, sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. Man, what a quote right there. I absolutely love that. You know, sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. Sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. That's life. I mean, look, first off, that's life 101. 
You might want a job badly. You got to suffer for it. It's a long wait. They don't just open the door and say, oh, yeah, you're ready. Come on in. (laughs) It doesn't always work that way. Relationships. Man, you might have experienced pain in life before trying to find the right relationship. If you've got kids, I don't have kids. Not yet. I'm planning next summer to have two, three minimum. You know, we'll see. I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. But if you have kids, hey, you, you work hard, you suffer so your kids maybe can be in a better neighborhood. Maybe they can go to college. You can provide things to your kids that you didn't experience. Things like that. You suffer to provide those things. And man, on a sports level, when you're chasing a championship, there is a lot of suffering along the way, most likely. We were just talking about the Bulls in 99. Like, Think about Jordan and how many years he came agonizingly close but didn't get over that hump with the Detroit Pistons. That list goes on and on. But for Miami, Miami got oh so close to a berth in the finals last season, and they lost Game 7 at home against Boston. They come all the way back, and they win Game 7 on the road in Boston. That, I absolutely agree with Spolstra on that. Sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. So that got me thinking. There's been a lot of suffering with the uh, Pacers and the Colts. (laughs) If you're rooting for those teams over the years, certainly better part of the last decade for both and it just got me thinking what what would get you to not feel the type of suffering that you've felt for a while now rooting for those teams you know we're gonna circle back to that a little bit later when you think about the Pacers they haven't won a first round series over the last nine seasons the Colts they've won one playoff game over the last eight years That's a legitimate question. What would it take for you this year, realistically speaking, to walk away feeling like, man, that was was a really good season. I I don't feel the heartache and the suffering like I have in other seasons. We'll revisit that a little bit later today. Coming up next, Greg Rakestraw, VP of the ISC Sports Network. Sounds very fancy right there. Also part of the Sunday coverage of race day here on the fan we'll talk some indy 500 and anything else that comes to mind really rake covers it all i'm brian though in for jmv keep it locked right here 93.5 and 107.5 the fan the ride with jmv now you listen here he's not the messiah he's a very naughty boy now go away 93.5 and 107.5 the fan I'm Brian Noe in for JMV here on The Fan. want to welcome in Greg Rakestraw, VP of the ISC Sports Network. You know, I, I swear I have a sports radio ADD from time to time, Rake. And I'm going to talk to you about the Indy 500 and beyond, but I just heard uh, some Motley Crue in the background. You know what I mean? Are you a Dr. Feelgood fan yourself there, Rake? I, I can sing it. It tends to be a little bit more of JMB's age group. He and I are about six years apart. And right there, like, is that line on appreciation for Motley Crue. But I at least know who they are and can probably, like, you know, recite several of their hits <laughs> or even acknowledge who they are in, like, a picture. Because I'm not sure that 
that might skew just a little bit past your age limit would be my guess. Wow, interesting. Okay, so where's your your grouping? What, what's your go-to grouping there as far as bands and stuff like that? See, so for me, I you know, the 80s, I acknowledge the hair bands, but always, always much more of the 80s hip-hop and R&B guy. Oh, Even really? though I grew up around a lot of Motley Crue, ACDC, Metallica, etc. So I would skew a little more ACDC Metallica than I would Motley Crue. How about that? Okay, that works. That works. I'm I'm all in on Metallica, you know, all the way up to the Black Album. After the Black Album, not as huge of a fan. Have some good songs here and there, but... Yeah, I can fully get down with 80s Metallica. You and I, Rake, we're, we're together on this one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so you look at Joseph Newgarden winning in dramatic fashion. You think about the psychotic tire, which thankfully missed everybody in turn two. Uh, think about Marcus Erickson coming up short. Years from now, what do you think you're going to remember most about Sunday's Indy 500? Um, I, I think... I think the tire will be forgotten about as long as – I don't even say safety innovation because this series has always been so far ahead of, of other you know, series across the world and in this country. You know, this group has gotten that part right, uh, and so I'm sure they will go to school on you – know, you, you saw the press release yesterday, hey, it wasn't the tether. We're going to investigate this and figure out exactly what happened uh, because – so much of the story of yesterday was, hey, it's the largest crowd since the centennial edition in 2016. And that has always been Doug Bowles' marker, even before the days of, of Roger Penske buying the track four years ago. Doug was always very smart about saying, listen, 2016 is always going to be the bar. Can we keep the attendance from 2017 forward better than 2016? I can simply you know, share with you from my experience of doing the post-race show and leaving at 7 o'clock, there have been twice in my years of doing that where traffic still been a bit of an issue. Hmm. 16 and, and, and Sunday, those were the two times hmm. you know, that that has been the case. So as, as long as that tire thing kind of quickly goes away, that won't be that much remembered. The fact that Joseph Newgarden got a long-awaited victory, it always seemed like more a matter of when and not if for him. Uh, the fact that he, he found a place to climb through the fence, that might be remembered um, <laughs> as well. Um, and I think it, I think it will be remembered for the number of red flags that were thrown to make every effort to give fans a green flag finish to that race. How about that last point there? Because Marcus Erickson was outspoken about he didn't agree with that final red flag right there. Uh, what did you make of Marcus Erickson's comments and also the decision to go with three red flags? The guy that finishes second is never going to like it, and I understand where he's coming from. I thought he was great, even in the heat of the moment, to say, listen, I'm happy for Joseph Newgarden. He's a deserving winner. This is not against Joseph. This is, you know, hey, we should have had at least one more lap to be able to do that. Uh, and and I, I concur, but I also understand the logic of we're going to stop this as soon as we can to try to, even if it's just one green flag lap, to try to give fans the best viewing experience possible, that it doesn't end, or, uh, end under a yellow. Um, clearly the line has been set at, we're going to try to give you a green flag finish at all costs. We are not going to change the historic nature of this race. This is not going to be the 502 and a half. It's not going to be the 505 or the 507 and a half. In other words, we're not going to NASCAR this in terms of green, white, checkered. We will stop the race as often as we have to in the last, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 laps 
to be able to give you a green flag finish on lap 200, but it's not going to go past 200. I'm okay with that. I understand where Marcus is coming from. I'm not saying I disagree with him, but if we're going to default to we're giving you 500 miles, the last lap will do everything in our power to be green, I can live with that. Yeah, and to me, Greg, it's a little bit like, I'll make a hopefully not a strange comparison, but it's a little bit like soccer stoppage time to me, where it's just not concrete. It's not set in stone. It's not like basketball where we're playing 48 minutes. If we go to overtime, it's five minutes. It's not something that's clear cut. It's a little bit by feel. And so I can understand the frustration if it's not concrete and thinking maybe the race is over and I won. But just like stoppage time where you might be like, we got eight minutes of stoppage time? How did you how did you arrive at that number? I think that you just have to go along with it because it isn't set in stone. The gripe that I but I would say I would say five hundred miles is set in stone. That is but the red flag is part is yeah. what what it's what it's really about was could you have thrown the red flag a lap earlier? Could you have gotten the cars in to, again, give him not one lap to be a sitting duck, but in theory give him a second lap if he gets past to try to then get around Newgarden? The other thing that I would also hope uh, is that, um, and, and this, is, this kind of harkens back to 30-ish years ago when there wasn't the defined like, grass area off of turn one, and people would dive bomb on the apron of the turn one, which was not technically on the racing service, but it was still paved. The fact that Joseph Newgarden was able to basically, you know, act like he was going to pit lane at 220 miles an hour yeah. and then duck back right in front of the attenuator, um, that's not safe. You could argue that any of the things they do on that race track are not, quote-unquote, safe. They make them as safe as possible. I understand the inherent risk that is involved there. But I would also say, hey, that needs to be out of bounds. If you're going to be in that area of the track, that means that you are going to pit lane. You can't use that to defend your position going down the front straight away. I would think that might get changed for next year, too. Yeah, it was crazy, that final run off of four, and I thought the same thing. And, man, I, you know, I don't know. You think about NF, the NFL and how they do make some rule changes based on safety. If you're in a car going well over 220, heading straight for a, a wall, you know, like right. not to the side of you, like in front of you, I could see that being changed very, very soon. It's exciting, but completely unsafe. It was, it was funny how Joe pointed out that was legal. He said, I forget which interview he was doing, and then he's, he's right. Again, that's where it's on the steward say, okay, hey, you got one over on us this time. You found the loophole. Let's close the loophole and not have that happen again. Do you know how they arrived on the name Dragon to try to break <laughs> up the drafting? How did they come up with the Dragon move? I, I, I have no idea to find somebody smarter than me. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the resembling of the tail, perhaps. Mm. Maybe it's the whole breathing fire element of it. Don't know. <laughs> but, but, but could be either of those two or, or completely none of those two things at all. Greg Rakestraw joining us here, VP of the ISC Sports Network. Is there anything you could put your finger on, Greg, where the attendance was just outstanding on Sunday. Is there anything that you would say there's a reason why there was an uptick compared to other years? Um, I think the series is hitting all the right notes. And let's face it, the weather gods were kind, and we knew it several days out. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we have – and it's funny to see the difference in what we think is about 325,000 people and then what we thought was between kind of 200 and 250,000 people. 
because that's really what the crowds were, say, late 2000s, early 2010s. And because you know, the window of 2000 to now is oftentimes the windows that we'll see in terms of replays because that's the age of the drivers that are competing now. So Elio Castro-Neves, longest tooth in the field in terms of 500 starts, this was his 23rd. So we're often going to see replays from, say, 2001 until now because we're showing you, here's when Tony Kanaan won in 2013. Here's when Marco Andretti got passed in 2006. Here's when Scott Dixon won in 2008. And if you look at the replays of those laps as they're going through one and two or three and four, you see a lot more empty seats then than you do now. So part of it is the series is doing so many things right. Part of it is Doug Bowles does so many things right as the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Roger Penske has done so many things right in terms of his ownership of the track over the course of the last four years. I do think there is even more of a sense of appreciation as to what Indy means after nobody could go in the 2020 Indianapolis 500. I do think there is something to that. So I think it's all of those little elements that combined to make Sunday's race so special. No doubt, man. Well, hey, Greg, good to catch up with you. Hope you uh, have a great rest of the day, and hopefully we'll chat again soon sometime. All right, don't set the bar too high. I'm the substitute teacher tomorrow, so don't be too good at this, okay? Okay, I'll suck. I'll suck on purpose next hour for sure. Don't go that far. Just try to, try to be mediocre. That's the okay. bar I feel that I can hit when I'm in tomorrow. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. There he is, Greg Rakestraw, VP of the ISC Sports Network, also a part of the fans' coverage on race day on Sunday. So very cool stuff. Man, I got to uh I got to interview Joseph Newgarden on Thursday before the race. I was filling in with Jimmy Cook on the midday show. And so we talked to Joseph. And it was funny, right before the race, I was like, maybe, maybe I should gamble on him, you know? And I looked at the odds and it was forty to one. And for a second I'm like, so if I put a hundred bucks on Newgarden I'd win $4,000. And then I thought, yeah, that's that's probably not the wisest bet I could make. Turns out it would have been. (laughs) Turns out it would have been the best bet I probably would have ever made to this point in my gambling career. So opportunity missed right there, but very happy for the guy. I'll actually throw some audio your way a little bit later in the show of uh, some of that interview. A couple of the cuts uh, from... uh, Jimmy and myself interviewing Joseph Newgarden. Very happy for that guy. And like Rake was talking about, the attendance. It is awesome to see a packed house for the Indy 500. The Ride with JMV. Why not, Mr. Venkman? Because you did not use the magic word. What is the magic word, Mr. Venkman? Please. 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Oh, what's going on? I'm Brian, though, in for JMV here on The Fan. It's funny. I was just talking to Greg Rakestraw, and Rake was like, hey, man, could you just be mediocre today because I'm filling in tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. I'll suck. I'll suck. That's fine. And uh, the internet just took that it's not a tongue-in-cheek joke, you know? The internet was like, oh, we're sucking now? Cool. Yeah, let's suck. <laughs> and it just took a dive. But we're back, baby. We're back with a vengeance over here. So I'm very happy to be here. Stephen Holder covers the Colts for ESPN. He'll join us here at 4 o'clock, so just about 10 minutes from now. Looking forward to that. Um, 
So as far as the uh, the Colts and the Pacers go, there was something from last night's game. So it was game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Miami Heat won, and Eric Spolstra, Heat head coach, he had this to say after the game. You know, sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. Yeah, sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. And, man, you've experienced a lot of suffering with the Colts and the Pacers here for the better part of the last decade. And I just started thinking, what would it take for you to not feel like it was another suffering-type season? You know what I mean? And so the, the next thing I thought of was the Sacramento Kings. Right, And we get this because of the trade, obviously, with Halliburton coming over here, Sabonis going there, so forth and so on. But just to put things in perspective of, of how much suffering there has been, would next year, would you sign up for the Pacers to have a season just like the Sacramento Kings had? I mean, as close to it as it, as it happened for Sacramento. And I think... Knee-jerk reaction would be like, yeah, it was, it was a great year for them. They won a bunch of games. They won 48 games. They were a three seed. They had all that excitement around light the beam, and they did that whole thing where it's like, okay, we, we light the beam, and there's this beam of light from the arena heading up to the sky, and it's this whole thing, and everybody's in on it. There was a, a lot of fun attached to the Sacramento Kings this past season. Now, they didn't win a playoff series, so you take that into account. But it was a seven-game series against the Warriors. It was a seven-game series against the defending champs. And De'Aaron Fox, he had a, a broken finger, and you thought, okay, maybe it's over for him this year. And he came back, and he was battling. So would you sign up for a season like that for the Pacers next season? And I'd be floored if Pacer fans said, no, I'm good. It's almost like um, you ever see on the Price is Right punch out? So it'd be this big board and you would punch four holes. And you would like uh, Bob Barker back in the day, he would pull out the envelope. I think the grand prize was $10,000. So he'd pull a a sheet of paper out and it would say... uh, thousand dollars and you're like "Ah, that's pretty good and he's like you want to stick with that or you want to try for something better (laughs) you know what I mean like I think that would probably be five thousand dollars from a Pacers point of view you pulled out five thousand dollars meaning you have a carbon copy season of what the Sacramento Kings just did this past season which would you put that back and try for ten thousand try for something better would you say man this is pretty freaking good this is good. I'll sign up for this right now. I would take it all day long. Because if you think about the Pacers, they haven't won a first-round series in the last nine years. So if they're able to get to the playoffs, have similar excitement, similar bright spots, have some breakout seasons for a couple of, of players, maybe play the defending champs. I, you can't make this perfect. Let's say the Miami Heat went on and won the NBA Finals this year. 
you play the Miami Heat in a first-round series, and it's this knockdown, drag-out, seven-game series. Well, you got the doors blown off of you in Game 7. That's what happened to Sacramento. They lost by 20 against Golden State. But, yeah, give me that all day. Now, this might sound like the oddest question you're going to be asked all day. But as a Colts fan, would you sign up for a Sacramento Kings-like season this next year? Everything I just explained with Sacramento last season. If the Colts could have whatever the football equivalent of that is, would you take it? And it's like, absolutely. No doubt about it. If the Colts could win the division, you'd have a ton of excitement. You'd have some breakout seasons. That would probably mean Anthony Richardson had a strong rookie season. Even if he got bounced in the first game of the playoffs, he didn't win a playoff game. First round, out, over. Yeah, I would take that all day. Absolutely all day. So I think that does put into perspective just the amount of suffering that has taken place over the better part of the last decade for both the Pacers and the Colts where you would, I think, it'd be a a no-brainer to sign up for a Sacramento Kings-type season next year in terms of the amount of success and even though there was a first-round exit. I think we'd sign up for that all day. Put that in perspective. Would the... You could name a bunch of NBA teams. Would the Celtics sign up for that? Would the Nuggets sign up for that? Would the Heat sign up for that? Like You could go team after team after team that would not sign up for a Kings-like season. Think about the Suns. You've got KD and Devin Booker, and it's like, okay, cool. So we win 48 games. We have some excitement in the regular season, and then we lose in the first round. Yeah, no thanks. (laughs) Not interested. And look, it's not to... I'm not trying to make this to be a negative. I I think it just, it paints a picture for how much, uh, how how grim it's been for a long time in terms of a lack of success. This is probably not making you feel much better. (laughs) It's probably not making you feel much better. But I think what Spo is saying is completely true. You know, sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. Yeah. Sometimes you do have to suffer for the things that you really want. And Pacer fans have suffered. Colts fans have suffered for a long time. And my hope is that things do turn around and it makes it that that much sweeter that you stuck with them through those low times. I'm hoping for the good times. But yeah, if the Colts could have that type of excitement and that type of turnaround from a a horrible year last year where they have the fourth overall pick. If you could get me to the playoffs and all of a sudden they're picking in the twenties and there was all types of excitement. Yeah. Give me that all day. But you know, as well as I do, there are a lot of teams, the chiefs not doing that. The Eagles aren't signing up for that. You know, bills, Bengals, the list goes on and on. There are a lot of teams that would say, no, we get some regular season excitement and we lose our first playoff game. That sucks. <laughs> that's like that, no I would hug that right now like yes give me that all day um, and so it just shows that there are a few more building blocks along the way for the Pacers and the Colts and look I hope they get there I hope they get there but it's going to take a little bit of time a little bit of time 
Could be a quicker turnaround with the Colts if Anthony Richardson is special. Hey, it's a good segue here. Stephen Holder covers the Colts for ESPN. He joins us next. I'm Brian, though, in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. The Ride with JMV. Here's Johnny! David Letterman! Hi, David. I'm Grandpa. 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No in for JMV here on The Fan. Stephen Holder right around the corner talking some Colts. You know, one of the parts I'll be asking him about is uh, DeAndre Hopkins, wide receiver, formerly of the Arizona Cardinals. He got released, and he's on the open market. And so, uh, as far as I know, the Arizona Cardinals do not owe him any money. Everything I've checked has said he was not guaranteed a little over $19 million this upcoming season. So with him getting released, I I don't believe they owe him anything. And that's really important because as he tries to whittle down who he's going to play for, how much is he going to be offered on the open market, and how much of a haircut is he willing to take to go to a, a premium team with a premium proven quarterback so that, those are key questions. And, uh, well, let's bring Stephen Holder into the conversation. He covers the Colts for ESPN. Steve, uh, hope you had a great weekend, man. Uh, what, what were you doing on, on Memorial Day weekend? Did you indulge in the Indy 500 or any uh, NBA action? What did you have going on over there? Um, I, I did watch Game 7. Uh, didn't see much of the 500, but I uh, – in in um, solidarity with all the, the folks out there, I, I did have my share of uh, alcohol, or excuse me, uh, adult beverages. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I know I had, that was that was pretty much. And then I did spend a little time over the grill, but um, but much more time eating. So, yeah, it was good. Now, how would you rate the the grill prowess that you have over there? Um, I can I can do everything. From the point of the meat hitting the grill, everything before that, um, I am not so skilled at. So the preparation, <laughs> I can I can take it from the the prep to the uh, to the actual finished product, but uh, I can get you over the finish line. So keep with the theme. Let's put it that way. Man, but, I feel uh, like yeah. I'm like you. I feel like you, Stephen, because I, I've noticed I've got a lot of grill snob friends. Because they'll mm. they'll kill me. They're like, you don't prepare the meat. You don't do this. You don't do what are you doing? It's like, bro, I'm just trying to cook lane. something on the grill. Yeah. yeah, I stay in my lane, man. You know, it's like you don't want me going out there and writing stories about lacrosse, right? Because <laughs> I would not be very good at that. So I stick to football. You know, and you know, I can mess with basketball. I did do that in a previous life, but you know, but my my expertise, I know where it is, man. You know, I know where the bread is buttered. So no doubt. Good. No doubt about that, man. Well, how about this with DeAndre Hopkins, released by the Arizona Cardinals? Uh, the Colts have a lot of cap room. He has said that he wants to go to a, a contender, right? Like at this stage of his career, it's year 11. He wants to go to a contender, wants to have a proven quarterback. That, to me, wouldn't indicate Colts. What do you think the chances are that he would end up in Indy? Yeah, I, I don't see the fit, honestly. And I don't mean it from a football perspective. I just mean it from the standpoint of, of where the two sides are in, in their current situations. I mean, as you mentioned, 
DeAndre Hopkins is a guy who, uh, you know, look, his best years are probably behind him. So in, in what he has left of his prime, I'm sure he wants to win. He hasn't done very much of that. And so that's, that's a reality. And then the, the thing is with the Colts, even though I, I fully embrace the idea of them beefing up their skill talent at those skill positions, I, I'm totally on board with that. And I think that's something that they have overlooked for a long time. However, I think the reality is with, with DeAndre Hopkins, what you have there is a player who, uh, I don't mean to say this in a disparaging way, but he's kind of a, he's kind of for hire right now. The Colts are trying to build, and I don't think this is a long-term move. This is a short-term, or would be a short-term move more than likely. And so if that's the case, to what end? You know, are, are the Colts trying to win the Super Bowl this year? No. I, I think those – well, they're trying. They're probably not going to do it, though, right? So I think mm-hmm. the the reality is if the Colts are going to, to beef up those skill positions, I think the way to do it is through the draft or or perhaps you're getting somebody on the cheap that maybe you can develop. Right, right now, I don't think that that's, that's really a move like this is in the cards for them. Yeah, I, I think the same thing as you do. What if, if we suspended reality and for whatever reason, like DeAndre Hopkins said – I think Richardson is going to be the real deal. I want to be a member of the Colts. And he wanted to sign for something that was relatively reasonable. What do you think the Colts' reaction would be to him being uh, willing to be a Colt? Yeah, now that gets interesting. I'll say this. (laughs) If you're the Colts, you know better than most what this guy is capable of. I mean, I've been in person at quite a few games where – DeAndre Hopkins got the best of the Colts. Okay, they they know this from his his Houston days, and and that was a team that at times didn't have a whole lot of other talent around him. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, they are intimately familiar with this guy's ability, and and he gives them something, or would give them something that that I just think they kind of lack. Which is, uh, although I I really like Michael Pittman and his his reliability, his toughness, all those things. Uh, I think what you would get in a guy like DeAndre Hopkins is it doesn't matter if he's covered. You know, mm-hmm. he's a guy who you can force the ball to him and he's going to come down with it. I mean, people, the quarterbacks have done it time and time again. Uh, he is, he's never been a guy who relied on, you know, sort of four, three, you know, 40 yard dash speed. I mean, he, he can run adequately, but that's not his game. His game is I'm going to uh, outfight people for the football. I'm going to outjump them. I'm going to outfight them, wrestle it away, whatever. And he he also has the ability to just make just insane catches that are that just kind of defy logic. You know, just to, to, by contorting his body and, and things of that nature. He he really has a, a, an unbelievable blend of athleticism and and toughness that. I think would bring a new dimension to the Colts wide receiver room, but yeah, I, do I think it's going to happen? No, but but if you, but if if there was some scenario where where it became possible, I, I think it would be what kind of boost would that be for Anthony Richardson? Oh my God, I mean mm. it would be unbelievable. It would, it absolutely would. He's Stephen Holder covers the Colts for ESPN. The top teams instead of. In in in, uh, in terms of having the most cap space, as I'm sure you know, Stephen, Bears at the top of the list, followed by the Panthers, Lions, and then the Colts. 
And while, I mean, I don't know that you're seeing Super Bowl contenders with any of those teams, like maybe the Lions in that group, do you see any of these, those other teams saying, hey, we might not be Super Bowl contenders, but we got a lot of cap space. We're going to make a serious offer to DeAndre Hopkins here. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what Detroit's perspective on on adding, you know, big free agents is, but, you know, if, if they're a team that – that I, I, well, let's put it this way: they are a team that thinks they have a run in them. I, I think they have to feel good after last year, and you know, I'm not saying they're one player away from the Super Bowl. I don't think that's true, but they are in the NFC, which mm-hmm. is a good place to be right now because <laughs> because all the quarterback talent is on the other side in the AFC, and they're in a division that just lost Aaron Rodgers, and really, I don't think has has really a, a team that's an overwhelming favorite. Um, and, and, you know, the team that's, that's a threat to them is Minnesota. And, and frankly, I think they go toe-to-toe with Minnesota and, and may have the, the better team, frankly. So <laughs> I think Detroit is a really interesting team. That They're a team to watch, I think, generally this year um, because I think they're at the front end of whatever run they're trying to make here. And so let's see what, what kind of step they take, how big of a step they can take this year. And a guy like that could help them take a bigger step. I'll say this on the cap space in regard to the Colts. I'm very interested to see how they go about, you know, handling that. I don't think they're going to go out on some kind of shopping spree or anything because there's nowhere to spend it anyway for the most part. But uh, I'm interested to see do they make a move and, and get Jonathan Taylor re-signed? What do they do with Michael Pittman? You know, I think they're going to have more of these situations as they move forward, and it's going to be interesting to see if they if they do those deals earlier than later, or sooner than later, because both those guys are entering the final year of their deals. You know what's funny, Stephen, is I never really thought about it until you said it right there, but I think more times than not, there's a greater pushback if a team uses a high draft pick on a running back like the Falcons just did with Bijan Robinson compared to a team extending a running back every now and then, like the Cowboys, when they give gave Ezekiel Elliott, his big deal, there was a lot of pushback, but if the Colts gave Jonathan Taylor, you know, it, it'd be a, a pretty big deal. I think there would be less pushback than if they drafted a guy with a, a number four overall pick. Would you see it the same way? Uh, yeah, I think probably so. There's, it's probably a psychological thing. You know, people have, or at least Colts fans, they have a, a connection to Jonathan Taylor. He's a proven player, obviously, even though he, last year was tough with the injury. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, as long as it's, you know, not something that's in some other galaxy in terms of the amount, I think people would, would embrace it. But it is interesting. I am not someone who gets up in arms about people using high draft picks on running backs. I do understand the logic of, of saying this is not a great usage of a pick. I understand it. I, I get the logic. I think, though, and I wish I could remember who first expressed this recently, but I heard this, this opinion, and I'm going to steal it uh, from, from a commentator. I wish I could remember who said it. But the point is, I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to create explosive plays. And and I don't know that there's many guys in the NFL that do that better than a guy like Jonathan Taylor or Bijan Robinson, you know, looks to be a guy who can do that. And it's one thing if you, you're talking about a running back who has a lot of yards, but really is, is kind of a yard per carry guy who, 
you know, he gets his, his four yards at a time and so forth. We, I don't think you see that with Jonathan Taylor. You see a guy when he's healthy, you see a guy who, who gets his numbers through explosive plays. And, and that's, that's what this league is. It's a league where you have to be able to score in chunks and, and get yardage in chunks. Well, he can do that. If you're getting it two, three, four, five yards at a time, I, I'm feeling less inspired about that. So as long as the running back is a guy who can do that, then I, I look at it differently. And I think the league has, has really started to embrace that. I mean, um, uh, you know, I think the, 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 that's why you explain the B. John Robinson you know, pick right there. You know, and the running backs who, who truly are, I, I think, now in vogue in terms of the guys getting paid or picked high, they're, they're that type of running back. Uh, we'll see what happens with Saquon Barkley. I think that's the interesting one because he does have some of that ability. Uh, but, you know, but, but is it, is it a, was this a one-year deal or is he, is he back for sure, right? I guess that's the question. But I think, but that's why he, I think, is a guy you could justify it for, though. He, he's a big play guy who can, can get you explosive plays, the kinds of plays your, your wide receivers can get you at times. He's Stephen Holder, covers the Colts for ESPN, joining us here on The Fan. There was something that caught my attention on uh, ESPN's Get Up. And so Chris Canty, former NFL player, he was talking about if Aaron Rodgers wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, where that would put him in the pecking order of all-time quarterbacks. And he said it would put him right in the GOAT conversation. And I almost fell over. What he was really saying Mm -hmm. is it would put him in the conversation of among the top five quarterbacks of all time. If we walk down that road... If Rodgers wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, do you feel like it would be nearly universal that people would put Rodgers over Peyton Manning? Hmm. It'll be interesting. I, I do think I do think that the the big void on Aaron Rodgers' resume is multiple Super Bowls. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, and, and it, it feels a little bit like the Peyton Manning uh, criticisms, you know, they were mild, I'm sure, but but there was at, at least, and there still remains some criticisms that, ah, the Colts had Peyton Manning for this long run and it produced all of one Super Bowl title. I think that's a fair argument to have or a fair conversation to have. I don't look at Peyton Manning necessarily as lesser because of it, but but I think you do. I think you can make a solid argument to give Tom Brady the edge if you're going, you know, if you're going to make that argument. If you want to to peg it to to championships, I mean, it's a pretty solid argument to make, right? So, so the the, the championships do matter, and, and I think so. To take it back to Aaron Rodgers, that's that's what he's lacking. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he has the MVPs. Uh, he has won a bunch of playoff games. He hasn't won the Super Bowl but one time, and, and I think that is. If you're going to, you know, exclude him from the conversation of the best ever, the group of best ever quarterbacks, that's probably where he gets bumped out. So if he changes that, then probably does change the conversation. I don't think he's, you know, top three or four necessarily, but at least you can have a more um, honest conversation. If you feel that way, you can, you can make a more honest argument for him if he wins another one, particularly with a franchise like the Jets, who haven't been to the Super Bowl in a little while, you might have heard. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. No doubt about that. Hey, before you go, what did you think about Game 7 last night? Oh, just 
unbelievable. I, I thought for a number of reasons. I think the Celtics, I just thought their, their lack of days ago play, it was shocking to me. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think a lot of that had to do with certainly the, the pressure that, that Miami puts on you defensively. But I, I just, it felt like a team going through the motions. And I, I was just stunned by it. I was humble. I, I would, as a Celtics fan, I would have been appalled. Okay, if I was a Celtics man, I would be appalled that just the effort didn't seem to be there. So that's the first thing. And then I just think the the Heat, they have this this attitude about them. They are not the most talented team. I do not think they're going to beat Denver, but there is something about them. They they just don't care. They don't care. Like they are the most don't give a damn team I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) You know, I don't know if that's a thing. But that's them. They do not care. And they are not phased by anything. And, you know, people talk about heat culture. I'm from Miami. I covered that team uh, in a previous time. So I'm familiar with the franchise. And people talk about heat culture. And, you know, it sounds like this nebulous thing. And you can kind of scoff at it. I'm telling you, there's something there. There really is something there. And, and they have gotten Jimmy Butler of all people, okay, to buy into it. Nobody got Jimmy Butler to buy into anything before mm-hmm. he got to Miami. Uh, the, the Heat have been able to do that, and let, look where it's gotten them. And obviously there are other, there are other fines uh, because they are so elite at scouting. I think they speak for themselves as well. So um, just a great job and a, a great example of a franchise that finds ways to get it done. Good stuff, Steve, man. Really appreciate the time. I hope you uh, enjoy the next grill session that does not include anything marinated or seasoned. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, man. I'll catch you soon, Steve. Have a good night, man. All right. See you soon. All right. There he is. Stephen Holder covers the Colts for ESPN. Good stuff. That's true. Like, Listen, there's a lot to react to there. I'll get to Jonathan Taylor, Peyton Manning in a second. But him talking about heat culture – it really is a thing. I love that description, too, of the Miami Heat, where they're the most, you know, don't care team. They just don't care. And in a good way, he means that as a compliment. I take it as Miami doesn't try to be anything but themselves. They're not trying to be flashy. They're not trying to be sexy. They're not trying to be cool. Right? It's just like, this is us. Take it or leave it. Leave it? Cool. We almost prefer it that way. You know, like, I agree with them. They just don't care as far as that goes. And heat culture is a real thing. Where that is absolutely grinding, battling, all that type of stuff. And he makes a good point because until Steven said that, I thought Jimmy Butler was just the absolute perfect fit for that. But Jimmy, he's been a competitor the whole time he's been in the league. But he hasn't been the best team guy. At times, at times, we all know the uh, the the practice session in Minnesota where he's essentially forcing himself out there, and right, like there have been times where Jimmy wasn't the best team guy, but I think you got to fit in places. Like I'll put it this way: I'm not for everybody. I can relate to that. You know, I, I don't get along with everybody. I just don't. I get along with a lot of people. I could be cool with a lot of people, but if you cut me off in traffic or, you know, if we're merging and it's your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn, and you don't let me take my turn, yeah, I might have some choice words for you. I'm not for everybody. I'm not going to get along with everybody. And Jimmy Butler, that's him. He doesn't get along 
everywhere he's been. But man, he fits in perfectly with Miami. He has been absolutely a perfect fit because Jimmy at his core, he's a grinder, he's a worker, he's a competitor. That is the Heat's culture. And that's not the culture everywhere. And I think that's where the clash has been. Um, As far as Jonathan Taylor and Peyton Manning go, I'm Brian, though, in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5, the fan. You're more than welcome to check in. Feel free. Hit us up. Uh, We've got some tickets to give away at the end of this hour. Rick uh, Springfield. So the end of this hour, end of next hour, we've got a chance for you to win some tickets. Very much excited for that. Um, I thought it was interesting talking about Jonathan Taylor, where what struck me is the Colts have this cap room. They've got this money. And they're probably not going to get DeAndre Hopkins, who is a big-name wide receiver on the open market. Hopkins has said he wants to play for a Super Bowl contender, wants to play for a proven quarterback. That's just not Anthony Richardson. He's a rookie, and the Colts won four games last season, you know? So it doesn't seem like he's going to be a Colt. And Stephen Holder brought up that the Colts have a lot of cap space. What did they do with it? You don't have a who's who of guys on the open market right now, so... So do they apply that money to Jonathan Taylor? Do they extend him? What I take away is it made my mind go to teams that bet against their own players. That's where my mind went. Where think of it this way. It's not like the Colts are rooting for Jonathan Taylor to have a bad year. But if you're watching dollars and cents, you have to do the math on something like this. I would be thinking, hey, instead of extending Jonathan Taylor right now, what are the chances JT has this sensational season when we've got a two-headed monster of Gardner Minshew and Anthony Richardson, who are probably going to start for a a good amount of games this season? Is JT just going to crush it? You know? Or is he going to see a bunch of dudes in the box daring us to keep them honest with Anthony Richardson. You know, so I think the timing of deals is really interesting. And that's something that doesn't get discussed a whole lot for obvious reasons. It's not like you're going to stick a microphone in front of Jim Ursay or Chris Ballard's face and said, hey, are you kind of betting against Jonathan Taylor at this point? And they're like, yeah, actually. I mean, <laughs> and they rattle off the reasons I just did. No, they're never going to say something like that. But any shrewd front office is going to do that. Timing of deals matters a whole lot. It's really, really important. And so, believe it, where teams, uh, they're going to wait it out a little bit. They're going to bide their time. Now is not the right time to sign the guy. It works the opposite way. where They might be trying to get ahead of the curve. Where they think, hey man, this guy might pop this season. You know, and it just makes sense to extend them now instead of after they pop and have this sensational season and the price tag goes up. So the timing matters. I find that to be really, really interesting. But if I'm the Colts, I would wait. You could play at the other side. You could look at it the other way and say, well, they got to rely on the running game. You've got Gardner Minshew and a rookie quarterback. You got to pound the rock. Hey, maybe. JT will have a better season than I'm envisioning. But I think the odds are better than not that it's not a star-studded, awesome season this year. And if it isn't, 
then you would get him at a shorter cost. You might say all of this is over-the-top thinking because he's a running back and he's not going to break the bank regardless. Yeah, you could look at it that way. But I look at it where you want to get in the habit of making great business decisions. You don't want to just overspend. I'll put it this way. If you buy a house and you've got a decent amount of cash in your bank and you uh, overspend for uh, a couch and, well, that's not that big of a, an expense. Let's, let's overspend for a pool and let, let's, let's overspend for some great landscaping. And unless you've got endless pockets, you're going to start to feel that. So you just can't get in the habit of spending willy-nilly as if there's no end to your cash flow. When you have a hard salary cap in the NFL, you got to sign guys to team-friendly deals at times. It can't just be all player-friendly deals. So you have to keep that in mind. There is no doubt about that. All right, coming up next, we'll get to Chris Canty's comments about where Aaron Rodgers might rank if he wins a Super Bowl with the Jets. I find it interesting, especially how it relates to Peyton Manning. I'm Brian, though, in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. The Ride with JMV. Excuse me, sir. Uh, there's been a little problem in the cockpit. The know? cockpit? What is it? It's the little room in the front of the plane where the pilots sit. That's not important right now. 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No in for JMV here on The Fan. Man, it's so much fun at the Indy 500. Had a great time. As I mentioned briefly, I was starting to cramp up. <laughs> I was indulging in Mountain Dew. Oh, I had at least, I don't know, three, four cupfuls of dew. It was great. It was, it was spectacular. Now, it was a very hot day. You know, it was warm. And I was feeling it. I was feeling it. My toes started to cramp up. I hate to even use this reference, but because it was a serious, it was a very scary situation. But do you remember when Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa um, got hit against the Bengals last year? He got slammed to the turf, and he he had a concussion, obviously, and uh, his fingers like really tensed up. I'm only mentioning that because. That's how my feet felt. I, I'm not, you know, making fun of a concussion or Tua or none of them. Trust me. It's just to paint a picture. Like, that's how bad my feet were. And a friend of mine was like, you're probably dehydrated. And I'm like, that's exactly what I am, what I am right now. I, I am dehydrated. I drank water, but apparently not enough. And uh, I paid the price for a little bit. A small price to pay. Small price. And, uh, you know, I, I was still there for the end of the race and enjoyed it fully. It was an awesome, awesome day. And uh, Joseph Newgarden winning it. I'll have some more thoughts at the top of the hour. We'll also have Chris Denary, Pacers TV play-by-play voice at 5 o'clock. So we'll talk some hoops with him. Also your chance to win Rick Springfield tickets. That comes up next segment. We'll say about uh, 15 minutes from now, right around there. Uh, we'll get you some, uh, get you a chance to win Rick Springfield tickets. So I mentioned this with uh, Chris Canty. So former NFL player Chris Canty, he was on ESPN's Get Up, and he was asked a question: If Aaron Rodgers 
wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, where would that put him among the best quarterbacks of all time? And this is what Canty had to say about that. Oh, he's in that GOAT conversation. If he would be able to exercise those demons, in his words, keep that Lombardi trophy case at Florham Park from being so lonely and add another one to it, then yeah, all of a sudden we're talking about the four-time MVP being in the conversation for the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Okay, so I had a similar reaction to uh, this was Rob Ninkovich in the background. Greatest of all time. (laughs) (laughs) That was like ever so faintly in the background where when Chris Canty said, oh, he's in that goat conversation. Rob Ninkovich is like greatest of all. Did he just say Does He realize Tom Brady is on this list. With seven rings, I had the same reaction. I think Chris Canty is just talking about being in the top five, being on the short list of the top quarterbacks of all time. That's what he's really saying. But if you say he's in that GOAT conversation, I'm like, time out. Time out over here. Like, Rodgers with two compared to Brady with seven. Come on. What are we doing right now? That would make zero sense. So... This is a dangerous game to play because here's what we got to do. We got to play the if game for a bit and then bring it back to reality. So if we walk down if Boulevard for a second, if Aaron Rodgers wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, yeah, that would put him on the short list of top quarterbacks ever. And the deal is, The final impression, the last impression, matters a whole lot. And if Aaron Rodgers wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, and that's one of the last memories we have of the guy as a football player, or the last memory we have of the guy as an NFL guy, then yeah, he's going to be remembered much more fondly. That's the way it's worked with John Elway. John Elway won two Super Bowls, retired, rode off into the sunset. If the order is different, if Elway wins a couple of Super Bowls at the beginning of his career and then he loses three straight Super Bowls or three Super Bowls to end his career, yeah, it's a lot different that way. It changes things. So if Rodgers ends his career on top, that matters. It does. Now, now, let's get away from if Boulevard, okay? Let's get off the interstate of if and get back to reality here. I don't think the Jets are going to win a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. And so if he ends his career with one ring and he did a lot of good, he had four MVPs, but he's going to be known more for, you want one ring? That's it? Really? Some people say you're the most talented quarterback of all time. You're the most talented quarterback in the history of the game. You want one ring? I think that's the way it's going to be. Uh, That would be my bet. Um, But if you play the if game for a second, if he wins a ring with the Jets, I think that it would be almost universal that people would have Aaron Rodgers over Peyton Manning when it comes to the best quarterbacks in the history of the game and whatever your ranking list looks like. I think that's the way it would go. Uh, This also comes out uh, kind of on the heels of what Patrick Mahomes was saying. Patrick Mahomes came out with his top five list of all time, uh, all-time quarterbacks here, his personal list. And he said, uh, Tom Brady, number one. 
He went with Peyton Manning two, then Aaron Rodgers, then Joe Montana fourth, and he said either Marino or Elway at fifth. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to tick you off, Indy, and make enemies. I'm not like, hey, I'm filling in for JMV today. Let me make some enemies. Like, that'd be awesome. No, but I got to tell you what I really think. If you have Aaron Rodgers or Peyton Manning over Joe Montana, I don't want to hear anything else about your list. Like, your list sucks. That is a terrible list. You have Joe Montana with his four Super Bowl rings, undefeated in the Super Bowls, 11 touchdowns, no interceptions. And you've got Rodgers with his one ring, And Peyton Manning, who was carried to one of his two rings by Von Miller when he was, you know, on his last leg as a member of the Denver Broncos. Like, really? And again, sorry, I might need to whisper this instead of like my normal yelling tone. (laughs) I I, I don't know. When you disagree with me, man, I really drive that home. You know, Uh, the four interception performance by Peyton against the Patriots, the pick six against the Saints. He threw an interception in overtime against the Ravens. He wet himself numerous times in playoff games. How in the world could you have Peyton Manning over Joe Montana? That makes no sense. So it's a bit of a hybrid. It's Patrick Mahomes, his top five list of all time. And it's also Chris Canty, him answering the question, where would Aaron Rodgers rank if he wins the Super Bowl with the Jets. In my book, he would be under Tom Brady. He'd be under Joe uh, Joe Montana still. And he'd be somewhere in that middle ground where you're talking multi, multiple Super Bowl winners, where it's uh, John Elway is in there, Patrick Mahomes is in there, list goes on and on. He would be in that area. I think he'd be a top five guy. But he's got to win another ring for him to be anywhere near third. I, I just... I can't have him that high when he's got the one ring. Your comments more than welcome. Todd is with us, wants to check in. Todd, you're on the fan, man. What's going on today? Hey, by the way, Brian, I've enjoyed your fill-ins on the uh, different shifts. Um, you're doing a great job, so thank you for that. Thank you. So it's almost like two parallel conversations going on here. One of them is a Hall of Fame conversation, and one of them is a top five all-time, which is more or less what you're referencing here. But – um. Just, just to give some context, Joe Namath won Super Bowl. If you look at his career statistics, yeah, they're they're Boomer Esiason like in totality. <laughs> okay, um, Terry Bradshaw, four Super Bowls. No one considers Bradshaw one of the five best quarterbacks of all time. So there's 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 context to everything. Um, I'm not probably going to actually technically answer your your, your question, but if if, if if he wins the Super Bowl with the Jets, that's different than if he were to get traded to um, hypothetically Houston and winning the Super Bowl. I, I think there's a, I think there's a difference in context. Um, I think Eli is rated higher than he might have been if he mm-hmm. wasn't playing for the Giants. Um, but 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 it's all it's all it's also leverage. I mean, you you can't leave a, a Bradshaw out of the conversation and recognize that Namath is overrated because he won a Super Bowl with the Jets. So I just like to hear your feedback uh, and hope you understand what I'm saying. No, I hear you, Todd. Thanks for checking in, man. Appreciate that. Like the compliment too. That was nice. Um, look, my mind goes in a lot of different areas. 
And the first area is when we're, when we're gauging individual quarterbacks based on team success, it can be very tricky. And so I think you got to be objective about it because I think it's all about perspective. No one in their right mind would say that Trent Dilfer, who won a Super Bowl with the Ravens, is a better individual quarterback than Dan Marino, who didn't win one ring. So (laughs) you have to... It's not like a black and white thing where the more rings you have, the better you are individually automatically. It's not like that. But I look at quarterback being the most important position in football. You have a big percentage say in how much team success you have. Big percentage. Not 100%, but a high percentage. And so that's the first part of it. And when you look at Aaron Rodgers, him being a four-time MVP, all right, Peyton Manning winning many MVPs, I look at those guys and say, okay, it can't just be about your lack of supporting cast come playoff time when it's good enough for you to be as decorated of a passer, for you to win as many games as you did, but yet the team just didn't get it done in the playoffs more times than not, way more times than not, with like Aaron Rodgers' case, one exception, or Peyton's case, two exceptions. You know what I mean? So I think that you have to be reasonable weighing team success while you're evaluating individual players. If you look at Tom Brady, when he has seven rings and he was the biggest reason why they have those rings, like it's, there's no debate. Like, he's the guy. And then you just go from there. Now, the other part of this is eras are so important here. It's so different. Like, Joe Namath threw more interceptions than touchdowns. He's also playing in the 60s. You know, like, he's playing in a completely different era. I would love to see Joe Namath in his prime today to see what his numbers would look like. I'd love to see some of the present stars play back in Joe Namath's era, or even Terry Bradshaw's. Terry Bradshaw, I have to look it up, but I think he's got two more touchdowns than interceptions. It's like 212 to 210. He threw a lot of interceptions. But again, it's a different era. What would Terry Bradshaw be today? And what would like Josh Allen, Bills quarterback, be in Bradshaw's era? Like Their numbers would look a lot different. That is really hard to gauge. It is not easy. But I think what you have to do is do your best job of trying to compensate for error. You know, the video game numbers of today wouldn't be the same. The yikes, nightmarish numbers at time, times back in the day, they, they wouldn't be the same. They'd be a lot better today. You got to do your best to gauge that. It is not an easy conversation to have. But I think it gets tough depending on the comparison. If you're comparing... Oh, I don't know. Joe Namath to a a present day guy. Um, I don't know. Uh, Joe Burrow. It's like, oh, gosh, that that gets kind of difficult when you think about the era. But if you just keep it simple, if we're looking at the top quarterback, to me is a no-brainer, it's Brady. If we're looking at the top five, it's not as complicated as uh, it's about as complicated as you make it to be. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that's really where it lies. Um, but look, 
I'll say this with Aaron Rodgers. If he wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, it would be massive for his career. If he doesn't, then I'll look at him as a guy who was extremely talented. But it's like, what does talent really matter if you're not getting it done when it matters most? Like, I, You can have all the talent in the world. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers is more talented than Tom Brady. But Aaron Rodgers is also the guy with one ring, and he's the biggest reason why. Brady's the guy with seven rings, and he's the biggest reason why with their respective teams. Your comments more than welcome. Feel free to hit us up. 239-1070. I want to get to this. Is this guy more name than game at this point? Also, Chris Denary at the top of the hour. Your chance to win Rick Springfield tickets coming up. I'm Brian, though, in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. The Ride with JMV. They call me Cuba Pete. I'm the king of a rumba beat. When I play the maracas, I go chick chick boom chick chick and 107.5, The Fan. I'm Brian No in for JMV here on The Fan. Oh, man, you know what that means over there. James is ready for you to check in here. Caller 9, you're going to see Rick Springfield. It's Saturday, August 5th at the TCU Amphitheater. A couple of things that I realized here doing my uh, Rick Springfield research here. The man is 73 years old, and hats off to him. He's still in concert, still going around, singing, having a good time. That's great. That's awesome. The other thing is, I realized, I'm not the greatest speller. At the TCU Amphitheater, James was telling me that, and I'm like, all right, I'm writing it down, and I'm like, I know this is not how you spell amphitheater, and I'm, I'm tried it again, and I'm like, I know there's an I, but I don't, I don't know. And so I just copy and paste it in Google. Boom. It pops up, the right spelling. Mini rant, just real fast. Real fast. The spelling bee is completely overrated. It's the most overrated thing we got going on right now. And look, I, I give props to these kids that work their tails off to study like the origin and the root word and where is it from. And they're trying to whittle down how you spell this word that's nine syllables long. I take my hat off. That's impressive. The dedication, the work ethic, that's great. It's fantastic. It's one of the most useless skills you can have in life, though. I stink as a speller, but I, I'm good enough to know when I don't have it right, and I just Google it, and boom, right there. I got the right version. And there's spell check, right? I don't know why this thing is still televised. <laughs> it's okay. I, I want to go up against these spellers with Google. You know, or whatever, Bing, whatever search engine you want to. My question would be like, um... Okay, say that again, and it's this nine-syllable word. I say, uh, okay, and I just get in the ballpark and say, uh, hey, what's the origin? What's the root word? I just have to go along as if I care or it's helping me at all. It's, no, I just have to get in the ballpark, and then boom, there's the right spelling, and I just literally read the letters and get it right. I'm going to win every time. <laughs> um Okay, so I meant to get to this here. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins. I'll get to the top of the hour. Kristen Neri talking some Pacers and beyond. Um, he was in one of the turns for the Indy 500. He was there. He's on the call. It's part of the coverage. I hope he wasn't in turn two having to duck a tire, run away psychotic tire over there. Good Lord. We'll talk to Chris about that. Um, and some hoops as well. 
But for right now, I, I was thinking about this. I was talking to Stephen Holder, covers the Colts for ESPN. We were talking about DeAndre Hopkins, the uh, free agent wide receiver now. So the Arizona Cardinals let him go. How much is left in the tank for DeAndre Hopkins? And this is a really tricky question for me because look at it this way. If your team picks him up, you're thinking, oh, man, a big name receiver. Not too long ago, we were talking about, is he the top receiver in the entire NFL? But if your team doesn't pick him up, you might be like, yeah, he's been injury plagued and he got popped for PEDs last year. So, eh, shoulder shrug. (laughs) You know, that's the way it typically goes. But if you're realistically speaking about what DeAndre Hopkins is capable of right now, I think that's a real tricky question because, you know what's funny? We talk about the ceiling for soon-to-be drafted players. We don't talk about it for veterans. Why don't we ever talk about the, the ceiling for veterans? What's the ceiling for DeAndre Hopkins? Well, going into year 11, I still think it's pretty high. If all things went well, if DeAndre Hopkins was healthy and he ends up with a a good team, good quarterback, yeah, he can put up numbers. But if we're looking at the floor, what's worst case scenario? Well, okay, he gets injured. He's uh, banged up quite a bit. You don't get the return on an investment. But I always use this. What's the realistic ceiling? What's the realistic Outcome. That's the better way to say it. What's the realistic outcome? I think DeAndre Hopkins will go to a place where he puts up numbers while he's upright, but he's going to have a hammy injury here. He's going to have a strain there. He's going to miss this game, that game. And and so his production is going to have a cap to it. So I don't think that you can look at DeAndre Hopkins and envision him being peak DeAndre. His season in 2015 was extraordinary. It was insane what he was able to do, especially with who was throwing him the football. He had 111 catches. He had over 1,500 yards receiving and 11 touchdown catches. That's crazy when you consider like Brian Hoyer and Ryan Mallett. Brandon uh, Whedon, those guys were throwing him the ball. He had four no-name quarterbacks throwing him the ball. And he put up those numbers. Now, the difference is, that's year three. That's not year 11, which is what he's going into. So as far as the Colts go, I'd be floored if he came to Indianapolis. Because he's gone on record saying what he's looking for. You know, if I go on record and say... You know what? I'm I'm looking to to marry a girl who's um, from the Midwest, and uh, she's a brunette. Like you'd be like, "Wow, Brian, you married a, a blonde girl from Sweden." <laughs> you'd be like, "That's not what you said you were looking for. That's a surprise." Well, that's it's a surprise if DeAndre Hopkins, who has said, "I want to go to a Super Bowl contending team." with a proven veteran quarterback. Why would he end up with the Colts? I don't think that's going to happen. It would be great if it did. If you could have Anthony Richardson with even this version of DeAndre Hopkins, who can still put up numbers, who's still incredibly talented, but has lost a step and is injury prone way more than ever in his career. He just got popped for PEDs last season. He was suspended for six games. You don't use PEDs when you're at the peak 
of your powers. You start using PEDs when you get banged up and you've lost a step. That's where DeAndre is right now. But he can still be an asset. I think that would be tremendous for Anthony Richardson, who didn't get a lot of reps in college. He doesn't have a lot of seasoning. It'd be great if DeAndre Hopkins came here. I'm not anticipating that being the case, though. And I think wherever he goes, even if he teamed up with Mahomes or Josh Allen or any of those guys that that's on his wish list, I don't think he's going to put up enormous numbers. He can be an asset, but peak DeAndre, no longer. Okay, Chris Denary right around the corner. Some Indy 500 thoughts on the outcome, whining, and advertising dollars. It's a bunch of random things I'm going to throw at you around the corner, but it should be fun. I'm Brian No in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. The Ride with JMV. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No in for JMV here on The Fan. Man, you know, with the Indy 500, my mind, I I just have this curious mind. And you know what is bugging me is sometimes I have uh, questions and I cannot find out the information. I I don't know, but I'm still wondering. The first thing I thought when I saw the replay, I was at the race, so obviously I didn't see it live. I didn't have a TV feed in front of me. But when I saw the replay and Joseph Newgarden won the 500, and his wife, they showed her in the pits, and she had this Dasani water bottle, right? And she's overcome with joy. She drops down. Like, she's got the bottle. She drops the bottle. I'm like, how much was that worth in advertising right there, right? When you remember Tiger Woods and the ball that was just on the lip of the golf hole, and uh, the Nike swoosh is there. And you'd see these stores. It's like, it's worth X amount of money in advertising. I wonder how much Dasani got out of that with uh, Joseph Newgarden's wife sitting there with the Dasani water bottle overcome with joy as her husband just won the 500. With that, we welcome in Chris Denary, Pacers TV play-by-play announcer at Bally Sports Indiana, joining us here on The Fan. Chris, I know you're on the coverage of the Indy 500. You didn't have to, like, dodge any tires in turn two, did you? No, fortunately, Brian, I was in turn four. So uh, I was uh, all good uh, where our location was. And, you know, the good news was it wasn't uh, an extremely hot day. I've been up in turn four when it's been 90-plus degrees. So all in all, it was, uh, you know, a very good day, interesting race. And uh, glad to be a part of it, as always. Man, where does that one rank compared to the other 500s that you've gone to with the outcome in New Garden with that pass on the final lap? Yeah, I mean, it, for me, you know, the two that, that rank near the top are, in the 20-plus years that I've done it, would be Sam Hornish Jr. passing Marco Andretti uh, to win in 2006, and then J.R. Hildebrand losing the race in mm. 2011 when the late Dan Weldon won. Um, those, those are two that, you know, in my 22 years, you know, go down in history as far as, you know, making sure you have the proper call and, and seeing great finishes. Uh, but, but you'd have to say, uh, you know, we've never seen a green-white checkered before. We've, we've never seen that. 
And so it was definitely something to experience for the first time. Man, when you like the uh, the situation with the wreck uh, coming off a of turn four with Hildebrand and like, is that my mind just went to? Did you? I don't know if you saw with LeBron missing the breakaway dunk against the Nuggets. Is that the equivalent of what we saw in that Indy Five Hundred? Yeah, yeah, because your expectation is, you know, the difference is when you're doing a race, you can only see the portion of the track that you're calling, right? Especially in Indianapolis, a two and a half mile oval. When you're calling a basketball game, everything's in front of you, but. To your point, you expect LeBron James to finish that play because he's done it 99 times out of 100. And for J.R. Hildebrand back in 2011, as I'm watching on the big screen in front of me and listening to my, my teammates on the IMS radio network, I mean, everything is smooth sailing uh, until he got to the short shoot on the north end of the track and there was a lap car down in the groove. And so he decided to either go around that car, he was going to go up. Well, you know, by that time, you, you're, you've worn your tires down, you get up in the marbles, and then he hit the wall. So, yeah, there's no question. I was setting my sights that day to call him as the winner of the 2011 Indianapolis 500, but all of a sudden I had to change and react when he hit the wall. Do you remember what you said? Well, I know when I go back to 06, I know exactly what I said about the Sam Hornish Jr. and the, the Marco Andretti, I, I mentioned that Hornish was catching up. Hornish was right on, on, on his tail. And then I said, can a teenager win in Indianapolis? Referencing Marco Andretti because he was 19 years old. I didn't say he was going to win. I said, can a teenager win? Mm-hmm. Because Sam Hornish Jr. was right there and, of course, ultimately – uh, past Marco Andretti at the start-finish line. Uh, for the J.R. Hildebrand, you know, it's like he crashed. You know, I, I was um, – so you just have to react to what you see. Wow, man. Uh, did did you get any uh, pushback from the can a teenager win? It's almost my mind goes to some people get freaked out if you mention, hey, this pitcher has a no-hitter in the seventh inning. <laughs> he gives up a hit, and they're like, you jinxed him. Did you get any pushback like that at all? No, because I didn't say he was going to win. Yeah. You know, I didn't. Uh, I just said, can a teenager win? Because he had the lead coming out of four. But I had referenced right before that. And again, um, in our business, when you're calling a race like that, you only have about eight to 12 seconds to say your piece. But I had said that, that Sam Hornish Jr. was gaining and he was right there. And then I said, can a teenager win in Indianapolis? And then. You know, I, I leave that for the play-by-play person. At that point, it was Mike King to finish the call. He's Kristen Neri, Pacers play-by-play guy, joins us here on the fan. Uh, what did you think about the decision for the third red flag? Were you in favor of them doing that? Yeah, from the standpoint, yes, I think. And it, from an entertainment standpoint, you know, we've seen races through the years end on a yellow, and it's anticlimactic. Um, so I, I honestly I was fine with it because I want to see I want to see somebody win at the green flag. In fact, if you go back, Jake Query and I were talking about this. If you think about it, on the second red on the Pato Award uh, crash that brought out the red, if that would have been a yellow, Joseph Newgarden was leading, and it would have taken them a number of yellow laps to clean up the racetrack. 
probably would have finished the race. So if you look at it from that standpoint, Newgarden was leading on the second red and probably would have won if that went to yellow, and then he wins the race, you know, passing um, Erickson on the back stretch. What did you think about Marcus Erickson being blunt and saying, I don't agree with the third red flag at all? Well, I mean, I think if I'm in his shoes, I would feel the same way, right? I mean, I mean, he's going to feel a certain way because he, he felt like he had the, the race won. But, I, you know, this is just me. This, I, I'm just representing Kristen Airy. I was fine with the call because I think the fans, they want to see the race end on a green. And they want to see somebody try to win the race. And, you know, if you look back at Sunday, and, and this happens in a lot of Indianapolis 500s, on the restart, it almost favors the person in second or third and not the person that's leading out of turn four. And we saw Pato Award, you know, they, they, they called off one of the restarts because he was so slow, he was trying to protect his position. Um, but, uh, no, I, I was absolutely fine with what race control came up with. And, again, Marcus Erickson and his team and Ganassi, yeah, they, they have the right to be disappointed, um, feeling like they should have uh, won the race. But uh, from my perspective, I, I was fine that they were able to finish it under green. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. How about the dragon move? Do you see – uh, that being outlawed any time in the not-too-distant future where think about that final turn. You were right there, and you see Joseph Newgarden dip like below. He's like going into the pits just to snake around yeah. to try to break up the draft there. Yeah, we saw Marcus Erickson do it last year. You, you see a little bit of the dragon at some other points of the racetrack, but not like what you see coming out of four because you have that pit entrance, so it's a lot. the track is a lot wider there. And, uh, you know, they're trying to draft, and, and clearly that dragon move is something that we have seen become very effective the last few years. It's not something uh, in my first, you know, 20 or so years, you just didn't see cars do that. But the last couple of years, we've seen the winner use that very effectively. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's probably crazy to call that, right? Because it just... You have that vantage point in four looking at him like you're behind his race car. And it's jarring to see him heading straight for the inside wall. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, I don't know, man. I, he didn't do anything wrong, but I could see them at some point saying, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, it's interesting because I only do a few races a year. You know, I joined the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network for the 500. And so when we were out there on Friday during carburation day, it sort of caught me off guard. I had to remember about the dragon move because they were practicing. And and I don't know who it was. It might have been Newgarden. It might have been Erickson. But it looked like they were going to the pits, right? They were coming off turn four and they were going to the left. And all of a sudden they swooped back out on the racetrack. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's the dragon move. We're going to see that on race day, and we, we surely did. Yeah, absolutely. He's Chris Denary, Pacers TV play-by-play man, joining us here on The Fan. There was something last night, Chris, based on uh, Game 7, where the Heat beat the Celtics, and Heat head coach Eric Spolstra said something that I thought was a really, really interesting quote. This is what he said. You know, sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. 
Sometimes you have to suffer for the things you really want. And he was referencing the previous year where Game 7 Eastern Conference Finals, Miami lost to Boston. This time they got him on the road. And I just started thinking about that from a, a Pacers point of view. And I thought, based on the Pacers, they haven't won a first-round playoff game over the last nine seasons. And I thought, would you sign up for the Pacers to have a season just like the Sacramento Kings are coming off of? What they did were winning 48 games, being a three-seed. They get bounced in the first round, but would you sign up for that today for the Pacers this upcoming season? Yeah, because that means you're in the playoffs, and I think that's something that this franchise, if you look at the history over the last 25, the last 35 years, I mean, they're they're you know in the top 10 franchises in in playoff appearances and trips to Eastern Conference Finals, uh, conference finals, if you will, counting the West as well. So there's no question that that is the mission next year uh, for this Pacers group, and that is you know to get to the playoffs and. And, and I think, Brian, that if we think about life and all the things that we do with our family, with jobs, how you handle adversity uh, oftentimes sets the table for your successes down the road. So I think in life it's no different than sports. And, and I, think, I think that's what Eric Spolster was talking about. Last year uh, gave them a, steel, a steely resolve that they were going to try to make an improvement. And with their backs to the wall after being up 3-0 and losing three straight games and having to go to Boston, I think they felt fairly comfortable. I mean, I, I read some of the things Eric Spolster said after the, the Game 6 loss. He said, I really don't need to tell them anything. Uh, they know what they have to do. So, um, you know, it, it, they've been fantastic. There's no question. When you think about, uh, you know, losing the first play-in game, they're down with three minutes to go in the second play-in game. They win. They enter the playoffs as the eight seed. They beat the number one seed, and then they have to play the winner of the four-five, and then they beat the Celtics. So you know they beat the Bucks, the Knicks, and the Celtics. All teams seeded higher than they are, and here they are now in the NBA Finals. So I, I think they've taken that adversity. Uh, that they've had over you know last year and used it to their advantage yeah it's been a sensational run I feel like this is a dated reference now but remember when Ohio State won a national championship in football and they were down to their third string quarterback it was Cardale Jones and I just felt like okay are they going to win the Big Ten championship and they won 59 to nothing. And I'm like, okay, are they going to win a college football playoff game? And they did. And I'm like, are they going to win a championship, though? And then they did. Like, do you see the same thing with Miami? Because this next series, I'm like, I, I think it's going to be Denver. Where are you on the finals here? Yeah, I mean, Denver's played really, really well. I mean, they've got Jokic. Jamal Murray's played at a high level. Uh, Aaron Gordon. I mean, go on down. Michael Porter Jr. I mean, they you know, it'll be interesting to see how they react to this long layoff, right? They have not played. By the time they play on Thursday, it'll be about, a, I think, a 10- or 11-day layoff uh, uh, since they uh, swept the Lakers in the Western Conference uh, Finals. So I'll be interested to see how they handle that. You know, are they rusty? Uh, are they rested? But you have, to give, you have to give the Heat a lot of credit. I mean, all of us in, in the NBA world, we get sort of sick of – hearing about heat culture mm -hmm. uh, but they've been to the, they've been to the eastern conference finals now three of the last four years 
They've done it with Tyler Hero going out. You know, Victor Oladipo was giving them something. He's out. They've got undrafted players in, in Caleb Martin, who had an unbelievable Eastern Conference Finals. Duncan Robinson, Gabe Vincent, and Max Struess. Uh Cody Zeller didn't even play three-quarters of the year. Uh, they got Kevin Love uh, when he was bought out of his contract by Cleveland. And then, you know, Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo have carried this team. So, uh, you know, Eric Spolster is one of the best coaches in the NBA. Uh, I would not put anything past the Heat. I would still go with Denver in this series. Uh, but the one advantage that the Heat have is they've been here before. I mean, they've played in a number of these series, and this is the first time for this Denver group. Uh, I still like Denver maybe in six, but I could easily see this series going in seven. Yeah. Hopefully it's a good series, man. Really enjoyed the time here, Chris. Thanks for chatting with me, man. Hope you have a good evening. All right. Thanks, Brian. Yep. Thank you. There he is, Chris Denary, Pacers TV play-by-play announcer at Valley Sports Indiana. Yeah, Denver, huge favorite. I mean, look at it this way. Uh, Boston was an even greater favorite in the previous series, and you saw how that turned out. (laughs) But look, styles make fights, and Jokic should do work (laughs) in this series. Because if you look at Boston, they don't have a dominant big man like Jokic. Robert Williams isn't going to give you a triple-double. You know what I mean? Al Horford is not going to give you a triple-double. So Jokic should be doing work in this series. But it's crazy where you look at Boston. They were heading into the Eastern Conference Finals. They were minus 525, I want to say, meaning you would have to risk $525 just to win $100. That's how big of a favorite Boston was. And Boston lost. And not only did they lose, they got crushed in Game 7 at home last night. And Denver, they are minus 360. So again, very healthy favorites. You have to risk 360 just to win 100 so big favorites those Denver Nuggets are but Miami at plus 270 they've been bigger underdogs before and they've come through this again last little uh, gambling line I'll mention for now I might mention one for uh, Joseph Newgarden here in a second but Nikola Jokic get this there are odds on him to average a triple double for the NBA finals like, what do you think the odds would be of that happening? It's minus 125, meaning the odds suggest it's more likely than not that he averages a triple-double for the entire finals, which is astounding. <laughs> He's a, you would, again, you would risk 125 to win 100. Say so it's close to even money, close. And uh, to, for him to average that, that it was just like, wow, holy cow, they're expecting a monster series from Jokic, which I would expect as well. I think he's the best player in the game right now. Uh, we'll see what he does because he's been special at this point. Uh, Brian, no, in for JMV, 93.5 and 107.5, the fan. So Joseph Newgarden, Indy 500 winner. I thought it was an awesome, awesome ending. I hate that it's become controversial in any way because that's entertaining. The funny thing to me is if the race officials just said, you know what, let's finish under caution. Yellow flag. 
yellow white checker. Let's just, you know, let's coast on in here. He'll cross the bricks at about 55 miles per hour or whatever it is. Like, it would have been so deflating just to watch the outcome. Marcus Erickson would have won, but and it's nothing against him or Newgarden not winning. Or It would just be a, a lame ending. And so, look, I think you've got to do things with entertainment value in mind. I don't think that you should completely bow down to all things entertainment value. But, man, you got to keep that at the forefront of your memory. And the race on Sunday was a great example of that. You had this great shootout on the final lap. You're, you're coming out ahead way more than if you just said, let's finish under caution. I mean, yeah, okay, you've got sour grapes Marcus Erickson saying some things and whining and all that type of stuff. That's not ideal, but it's way better than finishing under caution. You just got to give the people what they want, and they want a shootout. They want an exciting final lap. They've watched this race for hours and hours, possibly. If you were there at the track, if you were at home, you want to see some, like, crescendo. You want to see it building to the dramatic conclusion. You don't want caution. You should avoid caution every time when it's realistically possible, okay? Like, you should absolutely do that. And so I have no problem at all with race officials doing just that. Now, this was Marcus Erickson, who is cranky pants right here. He's upset about the restart. It's the first thing he had to say right after the race on NBC. I just thought it was an unfair and dangerous end to the race. I don't think it was enough laps to do what we did. I think we've never done a restart out of the pits. And, uh, you know, we don't get the tires up to temperature. You know, congratulations to Joseph. He, he did everything right as well. So, you know, he's, he's a worthy champion. But I'm just very disappointed with the way that, end, that ended. I don't think that was fair. Well, well, well. I don't know. Is that a good new nickname for Marcus Erickson? Let's try it out. And in the, uh, I don't know. Uh, and in the nine car, I don't know what his number. In the nine car, here's Marcus. Well, well, well. Erickson. I don't know. I could get used to it. I think it's fitting. Give me a break. This guy, and he didn't stop there. More whining from Erickson. You've experienced the ecstasy of winning this race. Is it just as painful to come that close and not win it? Yeah, it is, because I feel like we did everything right. I feel like we won that race, and then it sort of got taken away from us. So it's uh, tough to swallow, for sure. Oh, my gosh. This guy, here's the thing. I swat away biased comments like I'm Dikembe Mutombo. <laughs> okay, that's, that's like you ever go out on the back porch in the middle of summer and it's just nothing but gnats and mosquitoes and you're just swatting stuff away and you, that's me with biased comments. That's what I do. I, I give it to Kembe. No, no, no. I'm going to start doing that. I didn't think about it till now. That's what I'm going to do to mosquitoes this summer. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to swat and go, no, no, no. That's what I'm doing to Marcus Erickson's biased comments here. Do you think for a second that if Marcus Erickson was in second place and the race officials, they're determining, hey, do we red flag it a third time or we did just finish under caution? If Marcus Erickson is in second place and they say, yeah, let's just end it on caution. Do you think that he'd be cool with that? 
Do you think he'd be like, yeah, it's the right decision? I get it. We don't have that much time for our tires to warm up, and yeah, we never do it that way. So, yeah, that's cool. Really? No. He'd be like, man, I wish we had one final chance here, and I was so close, and why not a third red flag? I would expect comments like that. And then there's another thing to consider here. After that final red flag, the third one, if Marcus Erickson, who started in first place, held on and won the race, do you think that he'd be bellyaching about that third restart? That third red flag? Would he be dwelling on it? That was the wrong uh, decision. Uh, they, they shouldn't have done that. We've never done it before. Our tires aren't fully warm. and uh, it's, Really? No, he's not. It's a footnote if he holds on and wins. So this dude is just sour grapes, Captain Cranky Pants. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And that's the thing. That's what I have a problem with. The biased comments. It's so slanted to his favor. It's not objective whatsoever. Not any word that he said there had any ounce of objectivity. If you're not objective, I'm not going to listen to you. If you're just, like, listen, you ever hear just a total homer? That's everything's positive with that person's team. Every draft pick is great. Oh, they're probably going to win every game this year. It's just like, dude, you're not even close. <laughs> you're so blinded by your rooting interest. That, that's Marcus Erickson. Marcus Erickson is a homer, and he roots for Marcus Erickson. That's what I picked up from yesterday. And look, I get it. I get that it's incredibly frustrating. He was this close to winning back-to-back Indy 500s. The prestige that goes into that, the cash flow that results from that, the notoriety. That, yeah, it's very frustrating to be that close and to get past coming out of turn two. You were that close. I get that you're upset. But you know what? You got to be a professional. You got to take the high road. And everything being, oh, I thought we had the race and it was taken from me. I disagree. Shouldn't have been red flagged. Our tires weren't fully warm. Cry me a river. That's how I feel. I get it. I understand you're frustrated, but you're better off taking the high road. Because if you don't, you come off looking exactly like a crybaby. And that's what Marcus Erickson looks like to me. That's exactly what he looks like. And, hey, props to Joseph Newgarden. It was a thrilling end. I'm happy that guy won the race. I got to interview him here on the fan on Thursday. I'll play you a couple of clips from that interview coming up right around the corner. I was thrilled that he won. I'd be telling you the exact same thing if the roles were reversed. And Newgarden started that third red flag, right? He started in first and he got passed. And then it was Sour Grapes Joseph Newgarden. I would tell you the same thing. Because even though I understand it, I get the frustration. You can't make it just all about you. And whine, whine, whine without seeing the big picture. It's better for the overall sport. And the greatest spectacle in racing to finish on green. Even if it's a one-lap shootout compared to finishing on yellow. You can't put yourself above the entire race and the entire sport. That's what he just did. He's acting like he doesn't get it. Oh, it's the wrong decision. Why? Why? Because it didn't benefit you? Exactly. I got no time. Got no time. No time for it. Cranky pants, crybaby Marcus Erickson.
Not feeling it. Your comments more than welcome. Feel free to check in. We'll have a chance for you to win Rick Springfield tickets at the end of this show. So I would say about 20 minutes from now. You want to go see a concert? Make sure you still uh, uh, keep tuned in. Uh, coming up next, I'll get you the Joseph Newgarden sound. A couple of cuts from the interview we got to do on Thursday. Also, there's a great, great story about a Colts player that caused me to change my entire outlook. I'll, I'll share that with you right around the corner. I'm Brian, though, in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. The Ride with JMV. Son, you got a panty on your head. You drive fast, hey? 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian Noen for JMV here on The Fan. There's a great story I saw. It's on The Athletic. It's written by James Boyd. And the title caught my eye. It just said, after losing his biggest fans, Colt Zaire Franklin put all my pain into the game. So it quoted him at the end there. And I was like, well, okay, what's this all about? And so James Boyd did this piece on Zaire Franklin. And it talked about the close relationship he had with his mom and his grandmother. And it started way back when he was nine years old. And he was a self-labeled, quote-unquote, chubby kid. And he had to make weight. He's playing in youth football. He's got to be no more than 75 pounds. And so he would sleep wearing a trash bag. Like his grandmother would make sure he was eating right and he could make weight. This goes all the way back when he was nine years old. And then the story mentions that he lost his mom and his grandmother when he was a junior in high school. So he lost his mom to heart failure. This is back in 2013. 77 days later. He loses his grandmother of kidney failure. These are the two people closest to him in his life. He's a junior in high school. And so his football coach becomes like a father figure. And he ends up going to Syracuse. Zaire Franklin does. He does a great job. He's fantastic. I love this note about him. James Boyd pointed out Zaire, he became only the second three-time captain in Syracuse football history. It was the first since a guy named Robert Adams who captained the Orange from 1894 to 96. (laughs) Like, Zaire Franklin was the first three-time captain since this dude in the 1800s named Robert Adams. Uh, That's a great nugget there. And so, look, Zaire just kept, kept going, played great in college, was a seventh-round draft pick of the Colts. And now this is the thing that caused me to change my outlook on teams that have bad seasons. So Zaire Franklin, he broke the Colts franchise record for tackles in a season. He had 167 last year. That surpassed the mark from his teammate Shaquille Leonard. That was by four tackles four years earlier. So Shaq Leonard sets the mark four years prior. Franklin... Uh, has four more tackles last season. And, uh, you know, it it just caused me to, to stop and think for a second because a lot of times when you aren't putting the work in, it's really easy to dismiss the work, you know, or not even look at that part of the story. Because I look at it and say it was a lost season for the Colts. They ended up with the fourth overall pick. Their record was so bad last season. 
They're losing games left and right. So lost season. You just start thinking like that. That they came off a, a nine and eight year where they barely missed the playoffs and they sunk to four twelve and one. What a lost season. What a disappointment. So forth and so on. You're just thinking along those lines. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm just saying you're not seeing the entire picture that way. Because it's a lot different sitting on your couch watching games compared to being one of the players putting in the work and playing an entire season. Zaire Franklin, he put in the work. He had 167 tackles. And if he has that same number of tackles for a team that goes 12-4-1 and has a deep playoff run, we're celebrating that, that like crazy. For a team that goes 4-12-1, it's like it's a shoulder shrug. And I don't think it should be that way. The point is this. I'm not saying celebrate bad teams. I'm just saying don't overlook certain things because a team had a bad season. Don't overlook the work that goes in. Don't overlook the grind that goes in. Trying to prepare, fighting through injury, the bumps, bruises, all that type of stuff. I'll be the first to admit, I'm not calling anybody out except myself. It's like, I, I just don't even think along those lines sometimes. And that was a great reminder reading that piece from James Boyd in the, the Athletic about Zaire Franklin, where it's like, wow, dude, that guy had 167 tackles. That's a franchise record. This is a seventh-round pick who lost his mom and grandmother a, a decade prior when he was a junior in high school. He had to battle all those years to get to this point. And then he makes good on it. Like Shaq Leonard got banged up and Zaire Franklin gets a chance. He makes the most of it. Like that was a huge year for Zaire Franklin individually. And I think a lot of times we'll just collectively dismiss a bad season from the team in totality. You know what I mean? Like there, there's no good story. There's no... Nothing, I, I think like that a lot. Um, and it was a good piece for me to sort of check myself on that. Now, I'm not telling you if the Colts go 4-12-1 and, and I'm filling in here on the fan and I hit the airwaves and I'm just like, man, but look at the good stories and I'm just painting this rosy picture. I don't think it has to be over the top. But I'm just saying there are a lot of things that you might miss because the record stunk. And, uh, man, that Zaire Franklin story made me think differently about that whole thing. It really did change my outlook. And it's really just to say, don't lose sight of the work that goes in and some of the good stories in spite of the overall bad record. And I know I've been very guilty of that at times. So, great piece by James Boyd. And props to Zaire Franklin for doing what he did last season. Like A franchise record in tackles. From a seventh-round pick. That's a special story right there. So that's off to him. I'm Brian No in for JMV here on The Fan. Now, I mentioned I was going to play a little bit of a Joseph Newgarden audio for you where um, we talked to him on Thursday right before the race. And uh, I thought this was interesting. I was doing the show with Jimmy Cook on the, the midday show. And so a couple of things that stood out. Here, here's one from me. Check it out. How do you feel heading into the race, Joseph, just in terms of practice, qualifying, everything that's gone into getting ready for race day here? 
Yeah, I feel great. You know, it's a big buildup, obviously. Uh, you know, the Indy 500 is so special, as everybody in Indianapolis, Indiana knows. Um, and it's great, you know, to, to finally be getting to this final stretch. I feel like we're getting really close now, and, and we are. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of that point of the week where I just want to go do it. You know, we've been here a lot and practicing, qualified for the event. And, you know, now it's time for the, the main event. And that's the best part. You know, that's what we work towards. Yeah, okay, so we felt good going in. Here's one from Jimmy Cook. I like this question in response. We've yet to make our selections for Sunday. Why should we hitch our wagon to Team Penske and Joseph Newgarden in the two-car? Well, look, I always feel confident. You know, I, I feel like we've got we've got the team to, to make it happen. Uh, team Penske has won in 18 Indianapolis 500s, which is more than anybody by a mile. So they know how to get the job done. I've never won one. So for me, it's it would be a very big deal to try and seal the, you know, finally – a win um but I, I think we've got the team i think we've got the car you know we've just got to execute a good race so a- anything can happen i've seen it i've seen it many many times um up to this point but i feel confident you know we can execute when it really counts he was right <laughs> they definitely did he and his team they get it done joseph newgarden wins the 2023 indy 500 and this is kind of cool if you're a big indy 500 fan and Maybe you're a big race fan, or you've watched uh, the F1 series Drive to Survive. They're doing this like IndyCar style, and this is uh, Joseph talking about that when we visited last Thursday. Here you go. What other drivers have you been impressed with, Joseph? Oh, no, that's not the one. Here, let me get you this one, because he was like, that one, (laughs) you might wonder, like, what did he say right there? (laughs) He was like, you can't really boil it down to anyone in particular he's like it's it's pretty much wide open you could pick a driver and say i mean what about that person to win the race and you'd be like yeah got a shot you know that's what he was saying but this is the one about the 100 days to indy i wanted you to hear how about this deal 100 days to indy it's a docuseries it's six parts and similar to drive to survive the f1 series it's 10 episodes per season but this thing that you're doing with elio castroneves can you give us some details on that thing yeah it's been great you know so it's, uh, as you said 100 days to indy it's been on the cw um it's it's in conjunction with vice who's filming it and it's it's been great to i think show a different side of the series that maybe people weren't exposed to in the past you know obviously if you're a motorsports fan i think indycar is an easy win um you know to me it's the most competitive motorsports product out there on the market and and we love it for for that reason but there's a lot more to it you know i think people are interested in the the human side of the sport you know what goes on behind the scenes outside of just what you see on track and that's what you're getting very similar like you said to driver survive on you're getting a little bit uh, of a more in-depth view of the, the whole picture of who you know who the people are in indycar um you know how this whole thing kind of comes you know comes together every weekend to run a race especially this this big event it, so the documentary really films from the beginning of the season all the way to the build-up to the 500 on race day it's filmed like real time literally what they're filming this week and for the 500 it's going to come out next week so it's a pretty crazy turnaround and schedule but you know it's been great just to, to give people that alternate perspective that's pretty cool man and uh you talk about hitting a grand slam you've got one of the dudes featured in 100 days to indy who won the indy 500 so they're going to turn it around real fast and i'm sure add the bells and whistles of him winning the race at the end that's pretty cool that's cool right there so and i know 
You know, thank goodness we don't have as many conspiracy theories in other sports as we do in the NBA. But, man, uh, I, I'm glad that we don't get these conspiracy theories. Oh, 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 now we get why there was a third red flag because of 100 days to Indy and they want to have New Garden. Thank goodness we don't have to deal with that when it comes to motorsports. I love the NBA, but some of the conspiracy theories are just ridiculous. They are so far out there, man. I had a great time at the Indy 500. Props to Radio 1. They gave me a, a credential and it was it was so much fun, man. It was great being there. It'd been a number of years. I've gone to a, a few races over the years, but it'd been a long time since I had been back for an Indy 500. Beautiful weather. It was awesome. And to be close to the start-finish line, it, it was really, really cool. I'm incredibly thankful. The, fu- <laughs> the funny thing is I'm such an idiot. I shouldn't even be telling you this. But um, before the race, I... I got there, and I had to do a radio show later in the day. So I, I got to the media center, and I they set me up with like a little podcast area. So I went to that area, and I just tested my stuff out, make sure it was ready. The show was going to be after the race at 5 o'clock. So I got everything set up. Everything works beautiful. I tear it down. And so I'm like, okay, we got a little bit of time before the race starts. So I'm like, oh, I'll get some food. So I got some food, and... Then I'm like, you know, what is this pass? Where does it get me exactly? And so I'm like, I, I looked at it and it says something about the pits. And I'm like, oh, cool. I should check out the pits real quick. Maybe I can go on uh, by Gasoline Alley. And so, so I go there toward the pits and there was a guy there. And I, I'm kind of like walking like I should be there because I thought I should. And I walk up to him and I stop and he goes, oh, you got to have a, a green pass. And I go, oh, yeah, this is, I can't get there to the pits right now? And he's like, no. He's like, you could have before, but it ends at a certain time, and it, that time is, is now. Like, you can't get there now. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, well, where can I get? And he's, he goes, honestly, I don't know. And I'm like, that makes two of us. I have no idea where I can go here. And so I asked a, a co- around a couple other times. I'm not calling anybody out. I wouldn't know what's what either uh and they were just like i don't know and i'm like well i guess it's good for the media center so i just hung out there i hung out there but it turns out i could have gone down to the pits for a little bit maybe around 11 before the race or gasoline alley and i'm like oh shoot i didn't even know i'm a bozo i was just downing mountain dews and free food instead of going to the pits i didn't know i didn't know you know, every now and then, I am a moron, you know? I, it, it does happen. It does happen. All right, coming up next, we close it down in style. We'll have some fun. There's some great, great audio that I think will either put a smile on your face or make you laugh out loud. And we'll have a chance for you to win some free tickets. That's right. You want to go see a concert? Huh? You want to go see um, a guy who sang Jesse's Girl? Huh? You want to go do that? Well, we got free tickets for you here. August 5th, you can see Rick Springfield. So we'll have your chance right around the corner. I'm Brian No in for JMV. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. The Ride with JMV. Attention, whoever you are. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. The f- lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No in for JMV here on The Fan. That's where I get your calls in. Caller 9, you got you some Rick 
Springfield tickets. God bless him. 73 years old, still going strong in concert. He'll be there at the TCU Amphitheater on August 5th. So we got some tickets for you. If you want on in, get on in. Um, Yeah, I got some funny stuff for you here before we get on out of here. Uh, this was funny. This was a, a hot mic moment. Gotta love the hot mic moments, don't you? This was in a Miami Marlins game. Listen to the umpire talking trash about the Marlins challenging a call at home plate. Here you go. Miami's challenging the out call at home plate. But the Marlins are going to challenge that. They got their heads up their ass. <laughs> that's, that's the ump not knowing that his mic is on saying, like, why in the world are they challenging this? Don't they know they're not going to win this thing? I I got a kick out of that. I thought that was very funny. Uh, we got some other moments here. Let's stick with baseball. This is a minor league baseball. Something you don't see every day. Here you go. Pitch way up. Says hit him. The pitch hits Reinheimer on the back. Oh, my goodness. Jack Reinheimer is taking off his shirt to show home plate umpire Andrew Vincent where he got pitched. And he's awarded first base. I don't think I've ever seen that in my life. Reinheimer strips for Andrew Vincent just to show him proof of where he was hit. Yeah, you normally don't see that. But there you go. There's some uh, uh, Gastonia Honey Hunters action for you. That was the infielder. That's the team he played for, Jack Reinheimer. And he got belted in the back. And the umpire's like, I'm not convinced. I don't know if you got hit. We're not fancy. This isn't MLB. We don't have replay. Let's see. Lift your shirt. <laughs> Let's see if there's a mark there. And there was. And he's like, all right, you get first base. <laughs> I love that. I, I think that's hilarious. Thankfully, this is funny now that everything turned out okay. The psychotic tire in turn two, 15 laps to go. There's a, a collision, and a tire goes flying. It eludes the grandstands. It just hits a car in the parking lot. This is how it sounded on NBC. Joseph Newgarden on the outside of Felix Rosenquist moves that shell car. Oh! Felix in the wall, big time. This is going to be a big hit right here. I don't know if he's going to keep it out of the turn two wall. Oh, no! Kirkwood! Kirkwood upside down! My goodness. Like, thankfully, everything was okay. Kirkwood, like he just said, upside down, sliding on his lid. You know, sparks everywhere. Not good. He was fine. Walked away okay. And thankfully, everybody in attendance was all right. That's wild. It still blows my mind. That's a 45-foot catch fence. 45 feet in the air. And that tire cleared it like it was nothing. Imagine if that hit someone. That's, wow. That's thankfully. I'm not calling anybody out. Just freaky things happen in sports sometimes. Uh, but I'm just, man, I'm thankful. Because think about this. For anybody who got hit by that thing, could have been curtains or serious injury. And that would have been the number one story. Like, I would have felt bad for anybody involved. But secondarily, with Joseph Newgarden winning the race, it, it would have made that a secondary story. Like, it just would have it would have ruined the day. So thankfully, it just hit a Chevy Malibu and not... You know, Tom from Noblesville or whatever. <laughs> Fortunately, it came out that way. Now, I love this part of the call. Oh! I like that. I think we can just use that from time to time. Maybe if you have a bold prediction, 
Like, you know, I'm going to take the Miami Heat to upset the Denver Nuggets. Oh! Right? Like, you can just do something like that, have some fun with it. I like this as well. This is one of the funnier stories. Uh, Eric Lewis, he's an NBA official, so he's got a burner account. And uh, he was going to social media, and he was sticking up for himself and officials in general. And I listen, I get it. You got to vent a little bit. People are constantly complaining about the job that you're doing. Players, fans, you get an earful all the time. You need to vent. You can't do it. You can't do it. You got to take the high road over there. But the thing that's interesting, it gets me thinking about officials. So from last night's game, people do this all the time. The Miami Heat were 0-10 in games officiated by Tony Brothers and Scott Foster during the regular season. Miami was also... 0-10 against the spread. They've been awful. And yet they turned around and won by 19 points on the road in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. I just love when you get stuff like that. People are like, oh, the fix is in, and then it's, it's the complete opposite. Hey, had a lot of fun today. Props to James, technical producer extraordinaire. Loved working with James Adams today. Props to Todd Meyer, all the crew, especially getting me a pass. Love the free Mountain Dew and uh, experiencing the Indy 500. That was awesome. Everybody have a great evening. We'll see you soon.